um, unnecessary puns and comedy, which are part of the. What do you mean unnecessary? Well, puns. Un- unnecessary for the plot. <laughs> You've heard Liz to the quick. Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're discussing equal rights or escapology. And our guest is writer and poet Claire G. Coleman. Welcome, Claire. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are yep. you doing? Oh, I've, I'll be better when my arm's better. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You've injured yourself. I have. Mm. Don't fall over in the street. Bit of advice. Okay, that's good advice. I did my wrist um, in a car park. It was not, not great. It was going over a speed bump. Well, like not in a car. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. um, now you're you're a, uh, an author. You've written a couple of books. Mm-hmm. Were, were these inspired by your love of Terry Pratchett? Not as much inspired by my love of Terry Pratchett. Rather, um, some of my um, linguistic and writing quirks are influenced by Terry Pratchett. Yeah. I've I'm known for having a quite quirky style, and I have to admit that there's some Terry Pratchett in the way I think about words. Because I've been a, a big fan of Terry Pratchett. I can't even remember when I discovered Terry Pratchett. It's been a long time, though. Do you remember what the first one you read was? first one I read, it might have even been the Light Fantastic. So I don't think it was The Colour of Magic. I know it was almost early enough in Pratchett's career to have been one of those two, but it was probably The Light Fantastic. That's an even weirder one to start with. It's like not weird, but like harder to get into, do you reckon? I think, I think it's for the first couple... He hadn't pinned down that signature style that everyone loves so much as as well. Mm. I, w- I would never recommend anyone start reading Terry Pratchett with The Colour of Magic because mm-hmm. they probably won't like it. What one do you recommend when people ask? Because no doubt people do ask. It would depend on that person's taste in books. Mm-hmm. I, I would probably start with something like Guards, Guards maybe. That's a good starting point, I think. Mm. Or any of the witches' novels because... I'm just in love with them anyway. Or Tiffany. I love Tiffany. Yeah. Yeah. We've actually had a few questions about if this one that we're talking about today is a good one to start with, and we'll, we'll come back to that later, but it's, I mean, I'd say quietly, yes. Yes. I, I would agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so too. And did you did you read them in order, or did you sort of read them a bit all over the shop? Um, mostly in order. Mm. A little bit scattered all over the place, because when you first start reading them, it's kind of hard to work out the order anyway. The, mm. the I think also, I have a tendency to want to jump around, to want to read each major storyline oh, in yeah. order, yeah. each yeah. of the kind of sub-worlds in order, because I'll get on a frenzy, like I'll just feel like reading the Ankh-Morpork Watch for ages and just read all them, or then I'll suddenly get obsessed with reading uh, the Susan Stowe Hallett books and read all them. So I did, I did tend to jump around a bit. Yeah, so, I don't know. But it sounds like very ordered, like it's not chaos, it's or- organised or- within structures. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Do you reread them frequently? I read them all in a scattered, sort of unstructured way years ago, but then probably, I think, four or five years ago, I went through and I think I read them all in order up to that point. 
So that was all in order. So I've done both. I've read them kind of all over the place and I've read them in order. And sometimes I'll read my favourite one just because I feel like reading them. Yeah. Which one is that? Well, at the moment, over the last couple of years, probably A Hat Full of Sky is one of my favourites. Mm-hmm. I, I really like that one. Or The, the Wintersmith. I've got, I'm on a bit of a, a Tiffany Aching kit because I think she's awesome. Yeah. And an, another one of my favourites that you'd, I don't know if you've done it yet on the, on the podcast would have to be Carpe Jugulum. Oh, we haven't yet. Because that one's awesome. It's the next Witches one we'll be doing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. I haven't read it for ages. I haven't read any of them for ages. And particularly not this one because I read this was, I read them in order. And so I, this was like the third one that I read. Uh, and that was like more than 20, it's like 25 years ago. It's a wow. long time. Maybe not quite 25 years, but oh, no, actually it would be. It would be 25 years ago. It's a long time. <laughs> and I don't know. I think I must have read it at least once since then. But reading it again, oh, I'm, I'm very excited. In fact, we should probably get into it. Shall we start mm, yeah. by reading the blurb? The last thing the wizard drum billet did before death laid a bony hand on his shoulder was to pass on his staff of power to the eighth son of an eighth son. Unfortunately for his colleagues in the chauvinistic, not to say misogynistic, world of magic, he failed to check on the newborn baby's sex. It's a very short blurb. On my edition of the book, which is the early paperback. And you've got a new edition. I do. It has a much longer blurb. Does it add anything of, of great note? Um, it, it, it's, there's a bit of a quote at the top of the blurb in this copy. Hmm. which It's a quote I'm, I'm particularly keen on. They say that little knowledge is a dangerous thing, but no, it's not one half as bad as a lot of ignorance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is, which is a, a classic Pratchett moment. And I think one of the – it's a good philosophy to live one's life by. Mm. Yeah, it's a classic grannyism as well. I think. <laughs> it's, a classic like it's, it's a little bit of yeah. All right, well let's we start at the start. As so many Pratchett books, the start is really Real. all around a, a death. Mm. This really is a theme. Like from the very early books, there's always somebody who dies in the first you know ten or twenty pages and kicks off the plot in one way or another. And this is not the only one in which it's a wizard. There's several wizards who die kicking off plots in these books. And this time it's it's Drum Billet, which is a pretty it's a great name for a wizard. It is a great name. Drum Billet. Drum Billet. <laughs> I'm just trying to see if it sounds like something else. <laughs> Drum Billet sounds like something gross that happens on a farm, you know. Or it sounds like falling down a hill. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, Pratchett often starts his books not so much as a exposition about the world, but with a a little fragment of philosophy just. Chucked in at the very first moment, mm. which is um, one of the kind of more compelling things about. Uh, certainly, the early Pratchett novels had a, often had a bit of philosophy of his philosophy about the way the world develops. Mm. Chucked in it, which I'm, I kind of like that. Yeah, and it, I, and this one, like even more explicitly, he kind of just says, "This is what this book is going to be about." Yes, um, and it's it's written a couple of years after he gave a speech uh, at the World Science Fiction Convention. I think it was the Worldcon. Uh, if not, it was a major science fiction convention in around 1985, which was titled Why Gandalf Never Married. <laughs> so this was clearly something that was playing on his mind uh, a lot, and then he turned mm. it into a book. Yeah, yeah, so he was like Tolkien about it, and then he wrote a book. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Good. Good to good to get that one out at the start. Right Excellent. Out of the gate or... Excellent. Uh, my uh, note from the beginning is: Is this one of his sexier books? Which because he just uses quite explicit language. Little did I read into the staff and all of that stuff. But yeah, it's just it's been a long time since I've read it. Uh, well, look a bit more so than later ones, perhaps. Yeah. 
Um, although also, you know, it's quite chaste in some ways. Yes. Nobody wants to explain to Esk where babies come from. <laughs> although <laughs> also there's that great thing where Granny's like mystified that she hasn't worked it out herself as most people who grow up around farms do. <laughs> yeah, so she's dense, yeah. It's... Yeah, that was funny. But there's a certain uh, ability that some of Pratchett's characters have to be both simultaneously really smart and really dense at the same time. <laughs> about different topics. It's quite a common, it's a common recurring theme in, in my opinion true yeah no that's true i think that's very true after we have the really beautiful opening we have drum billet making his way towards a town by throwing a stick up and down in the air which i just thought was quite a funny image yeah and it's not a small stick either like you know wizard staffs are generally depicted as being a bit taller than the wizard so that's quite a that's quite a lot of effort and this time there's no mention of the wizard staff having a knob on the end (laughs) which is the first time he's not explicit about that yeah, he, huh. he, he mostly talks about what's carved into it rather yes, than the, the shape of it and the knob on the end. Yeah, yeah, which seems Actually, very relevant. You're saying that's like one of the more racy Terry Pratchett novels. Mm. There's a tendency in all the witches' novels towards a bit of raciness, anyway, from Pratchett, mm. especially um, like when Nanny Og. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Nanny. I know. This and yeah, so this feels a bit tame. Like It's I weird did, to see her without Nanny I as a miss, foil as well. Uh, yeah, I missed her presence in this book. Hmm. I mean, I, I think it's nice to see Granny have her own time to shine though, on yeah. her own. Um yeah. and clearly this is her life before she and Nanny like seriously team up. Like they must know each other by this stage. Mm. They're yeah, both been witches in the same whole, area for a long time. And there's all like the references to them knowing each other in their youth and but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, this is before he's invented the character, so mm. it makes sense. But still, it does seem, it feels a bit weird that she doesn't even write a mention. There's, proto, there's proto-nanny yes, later well, on. Yes, there's a, couple, there's a couple of proto-nannies. Mm. But yeah, we have this whole sequence where the wizard turns up and does this thing to give the staff to the eighth son of an eighth son. And nobody thinks to actually say, it is a son, right? Because, <laughs> you know, we're talking about a magical medieval kind of level society. They don't have any way of knowing before the baby's born. Except I would argue the staff probably had a way of knowing. Yeah. Oh, well, that's true. So what was the staff up to, really? That's the question. Maybe the staff's whole desire was to change the way magic works on the Discworld. Is the staff good or bad, do we think? That's a really good question. Because it sort of accumulates... It's got all this magical power until it doesn't anymore. Mm. And it does seem to have its own desires. And, it, and we know that Drum, the wizard, he's not in the staff, which mm. is what happens with Ypsilor the Red in Sorcery. Because he, he's elsewhere. Yeah, because that was a, that was a bad staff, or that was a bad wizard in a normal staff. Yeah. So the, I don't know. This, uh, this, <laughs> <As> uh, <you laughs> do. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but this staff, yeah, it does have a real mind of its own. I don't know. What do you think? Is it is it good? Is it bad? I, I would argue that just like people can't be good or bad, neither can staffs. Mm. I, w- I always argue that bad people do do bad things. Good people do bad things. Yes. And. The question is, is the staff a good staff doing a bad thing or a good staff doing a good thing? As in, is the act of creating the first female wizard a good thing or a bad thing? Mm. But is that the ultimate goal of it? Or is it? Or was the ultimate goal indeed to save the world, mm. having a knowledge of fate? And then, then what if it knew what was going to happen in the future and that the only way to save the world would be to end up in her hands? Yeah. So I guess it depends on what it's trying to do. Yeah, and, I, and you know, the staff doesn't really say anything at any point, glares at people in mm. some manner with our eyes, but that's about it. So we never really find out its motivations, but that could be true because yeah. it must know. I mean, you're right because the staffs traditionally can find the eighth son of an eighth son. Why is it finding the eighth child of an eighth son mm. who is not a son? 
I, I well, don't know. And, and also, how would it, if it can know that there's going to be an eighth son of an eighth son born somewhere well enough to know how to find it, mm. find that child, then how could it maybe not know that child's future? Mm. Yeah. yeah. So what if it knew the staff, knew the whole, maybe the staff orchestrated everything. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So really this, the staff is like the... <laughs> Is the driving force of the plot. This yeah. staff is, in fact, the protagonist. Yeah. Yeah. Was it, was it telling <laughs> I would read that Billet? fan fiction as well. Like, just the book from the staff's perspective. It's like, went to a market, destroyed some stuff, freed a monkey. Great. <laughs> had to hang out with this idiot wizard all my life just to get where I'm going. Although it never says where John Billet gets his staff from. And it's not... It's interesting because, like, there's a lot of emphasis placed on how the handing over the, of the staff is really important. But... We never find out where the staffs come from. Are they like Jedi's? Do they have to make their own? Or are they, they petrified wizards? Who, who knows? They're made of, I don't know. Are they sticks or sapient pear wood that just mm-hmm. change over time? Yeah. Do they say what this one's made of? Like, it's pretty dense, special wood, but I don't think they ever say. It could have been, in fact, prototype idea of the sapient pear wood staffs that are mentioned in later project books. Mm. The idea of a, of a, a staff made of a, of a sapient wood. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's obviously sapient wood. Well, is it though, or does it have sapience because of the magic in it? Because once the magic is gone, it does seem to. It is described as basically just a big stick. But could it just be pretending, like that yeah, thing where be, AI is pretending to not be around? <laughs> it's just had a. It's had a big day saving the world. It needs a bit of a rest. Yeah, it's just gone to sleep for. What's in years. disguise? It's in disguise. Well, it could be like stick. the thing, like in in truckers, diggers, and wings as well. Like it needs like a certain like it it. Is dormant until it's needed. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's done its job so it can just sort of go on holiday. Yeah. It's a a pretty perfunctory ceremony, this handing over of the staff too. He's just sort of, here you go. (laughs) Because they they talk about it later how it's normally, it feels like they're throwing a whole lot of shade at Freemasons the way they normally talk about how staffs are handed over. But yeah, it's just sort of he dies and it gets shoved in the corner with all the smithery things. Well, that, I think that's very, um, very Pratchett in a way because he often makes jokes about wizards having these really excessively complicated um, spells that could be performed with much more simple equipment like a thimble and a piece of string. Yeah. But they don't do that because that's part of the point is to create this massive theatre around it. Yeah. So it could be that the handing over staff could be simple or it could be a multi-day ceremony because... Wizards are like that. Yeah. And it's interesting because, like, Granny does ceremony around things as well, but her reasons are for headology, whereas it doesn't seem like wizards do it for headology reasons. Like, they're not doing it for the placebo effect or anything. They're doing it for grandeur and ego. Mm. Well, I think there is a headology there, but maybe the wizards aren't aware of it because what it does is make people think, oh, not just anybody could do magic. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, it's important and difficult and very hard to understand, so we better leave it to the experts, which is, I think, the effect of wizard Hedology and all of their ceremony, like, which which could be seen as as similar to the way that um, academia is performed, in the in that people mm-hmm. intentionally make it look difficult so that people don't think they can. You can be an academic or intellectual or have an opinion unless you've gone through this massive process. Yeah. It's a pretty similar thing, and you're not using the fancy words. Yeah, you, like, even if you're saying the same thing. Yeah, you've got to use all the weird weird constructions of academic prose, which is just impenetrable. It's, it's terrible. It's so hard to read. It's the worst. A wall of words. Like. Yeah, and it does keep people out. Yeah, so Granny is there because she's the midwife, and she's the one who points out, well, look what you've done. This is not a boy. 
Uh, and then just they suddenly they skip forward a few years to where Esk is seven. Is that? Yeah, I think she's seven years old. She's eight later, or she claims to be eight. later. And then she the claims book. to be nine later. I'm like, where did this time go? Yeah, lies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, maybe yeah. it was a training montage that we saw that went for a lot longer than we thought. I think it's lies. Yeah. So she's just inflating her age by like quite a large percentage, actually. And at that age, it's hard to get away with it. It's lot, it'd be a lot easier for me to pretend I'm in my thirties than for her to pretend she's nine. Yeah, because yeah, it's a height thing. She's struggling a little bit with what to do with herself, and she's got all these weird ideas in her head that she's not sure what to do with. She hangs out in this tree all the time. Yeah. And this is where, you know, Pratchett's early books are full of these very grand ideas he has about how magic works. So not easy to use like these big fancy names for spells that sound like they come straight out of the Dungeons and Dragons player's handbook, but also all these ideas where he's applying almost the ideas of physics to how magic works, but not quite. Uh, which I think is important in this book that it's not quite physics because later on that seems to come in a bit more. Oh. And she doesn't really quite understand what she's trying to say or think, which is it seems, must seem very disconcerting. Is this the staff, like, inserting this knowledge into her brain? What's the question? Like, is she like that anyway or is it, like, yeah, the staff's influence? It is possible for somebody to have thoughts they, quite, they can't quite understand. Mm. I've always had thoughts I can't quite understand. And you have to unpack them, but if you're young enough, you can't unpack them. So it becomes they kind of get stuck. Mm. If you can't process, unpack your thoughts, they get stuck and get you get confused. And I think that could be the issue here, or could be the staff, or could be the essentially sentient apple tree. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> having a slight influence there. Yeah, yeah. So Ipsil the Red puts himself in a staff, whereas here we've got our wizard just accidentally, I think, going into this apple tree. Because they possibly buried him under it. It's not entirely clear there. And like, when Granny talks to him later, when she speaks to the his spirit in the tree, she's quite like, you're gross. Like She doesn't <laughs> like the fact that he's watching her, which is fair enough. It's a yeah. little bit creepy. Although it is, a bit, it's yeah. a bit more avuncular. Like you don't get the impression he's like doing anything. He's just sort of keeping an eye on her to make sure she's all right. Because it it does fairly quickly get to that stage. Although I do, there's this scene I like where the kids are sent off to visit Granny because they haven't seen her for a while and they're not sure if she's okay and they have to sort of bust into her cottage through the back door finding the spare key and she's asleep on a bed and at this stage she hasn't learned to have a little sign that says, I, I ain't know. dead. I ain't dead. <laughs> uh, which is great. Obviously she's learned from this particular experience. Would that be a great T-shirt? Yes. I've seen people who have like a, a necklace that's like the shape of the sign <laughs> with the handwriting. And I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Freak out people who don't understand the reference. It would. But that's part oh, of the people, appeal. People who haven't read Terry Pratchett deserve to be freaked out. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yes. Uh, that seems fair to me. Official endorsement. Uh, but she's, yeah, she's, she's vacant. She seems like she's dead. And the other two. Wussy brothers. The Wussy brothers. Um, I kind of like, I like her brothers. I like one of her brothers. Pratchett's very good at writing kids, I think. Like, he really nails it. How does he describe brothers as, like, a lot of noise wearing trousers? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, basically. <laughs> but, yeah, they go off, and so she's in the room by herself, and she's she's very brave. But then, obviously, when she's there by herself and there's something trying to get into the house, she's freaking out a bit. Yeah. And we all know what's going on, because... Oh, been... we, we might not have before, though, because oh, it's the well, first, it is the mm. first time it happens. That's true. That's true. Yeah. It is the first time we meet Granny Weatherby. I think it would be different for someone who's never read any Pratchett before experiencing that moment. Yeah, you'd be like, what is, what is, is she dead? What the hell is going on here? Is her spirit trying to get back in the room? Or is it the thing that killed her? Like, mm. 
Yeah. I, I noticed one thing interesting because she's borrowing. She's sticking her head into oh. the mind of uh, not sticking her head. <laughs> that sounds but gross. The imagery of that is sticking just... her mind into the mind of another animal. But it, it, I found it interesting that in my copy, at least later on in the book, the term borrowing is always capitalized. But a couple of times early on, it's not. Mm. And I'm like, mm. I don't know if that's on purpose or if it's like an, an error. But I like that it is capitalized. And it's like this is a thing that witches do. It's important. Anyway, it's. It's something that, um, with the character of Granny Weatherwax, is possibly her most used, most powerful, profound power. It's, mm. it's something that she uses repeatedly in Equal Rights and repeatedly through the, all the Pratchett novels. It's the thing that her skill of borrowing is one of her defining features. Mm. That she's, I think one of the novels she says she's the best at borrowing who's pretty much ever lived. Yeah. Which yeah. makes the moment later when, like, he's training Esk because Esk just takes to it naturally. Yeah, and that's like a really big sign of how powerful she is yeah. already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Granny is the best at it. So yes. Yeah. yeah. Although she does make, she makes the biggest mistake, horrible rookie mistake. She, well, wizard mistake, I guess. She almost goes full Tobias from Animorphs. Like it's just, <laughs> like it's. Yeah, or I guess the modern reference would be. Sorry, I don't mean Excuse to dis- me. I don't mean to diss your reference, Liz. But, uh, you know, uh, the full brand from Game of Thrones. I do like the idea that comes up in fantasy fiction that um, someone's mind takes the shape of their brain mm. kind of thing because it makes the um, whole notion of shape-shifting or entering someone's mind and or borrowing or any of those things quite risky. Yeah. Because mm. you wouldn't think of things like that as having a risk. But if you think of it that way, that your mind gets st- um, reshapes to fit your body or the shape of your Skull was uh, quite difficult. It puts high stakes in in it, it in a way that makes it, those scenes stressful, where otherwise they could just be nothing. Mm. Yeah, and it's quite. I mean, it draws on this idea of, and I think Pratchett does actually use the phrase in later books, morphic resonance. Yes, which was the invention of this guy Rupert Sheldrake. Which, and I say invention, really, he kind of put it together from a bunch of existing Western and Eastern philosophies. But yeah, this idea that you kind of inherit the characteristics of the thing that came before you or that you are emulating. It's an interesting, like it's such a powerful idea of how the world works and it fits in so well with the ideas of magic, particularly on the disc world where belief is so important. So if you believe you're a thing, you know, and obviously it has got big implications for Grebo later on mm. as well. I think they, actually that's the interesting thing about Terry Pratchett in that it slowly it cobbles together for the early novels, but you find in the later novels it has a very kind of structured and, unified, internally consistent idea of the entire world. Everything in the world works for these entire internally consistent rules, mostly about belief or that the mind is more powerful than the body mm-hmm. in a way um, and that your experience is shape who you are. Even when you get to how gods are born in later novels or that the, the mind and the soul and the one's experiences shape everything in the entire novel. It's kind of like there's the um, consensus reality concept mm. that we believe what everyone else believes because everyone else believes it. It's kind of Terry Pratchett builds on that a lot. Mm. It's a great theme. And it has danger and potential for good. Like it just depends on which way it can sway. Mm. Jumping through some plot points, Granny looks like she is dead, but she ain'tn't. No, she ain't. She's been in the body of a crow or a raven. Yep. Comes and back. She's been roving as a raven. Um, <laughs> 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 and tries to come back into her house and freaks the heck out of Esk who escapes. Mm. Into the woods. Gets lost. And it's quite dangerous, even though there are those like knots on the trees and things. On the marks. I love that little yeah. detail. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's kind of like a thing that happens in, in the latest Jasper Ford novel. Like 
people finding their way through the snow. But um, jumping away from that, she gets lost. They're all sort of trying to find her, and then the wolves come. But suddenly, all the wolves are dead. Like, all of them are dead? Most of them are dead? Uh, well, you're not quite sure if any – like, some of them limp Stunned. away, and yeah. the other ones are either dead or they're pretending to be dead so that they don't end up actually <laughs> dead, which I thought was very smart of the wolves. And it's kind of like that scene in Beauty and the Beast, except she saves herself. Well, the staff kind of does it. Yeah, because it, you get. True. It's not quite clear if it's a magical force that flattens the wolves, or if the staff actually just flies in there and smacks. I, them I like on the, the head. idea that they've all been smacked around the head with a stick. <laughs> yeah, like monkey with a sapient stick. I just like that idea that a, a stick just going forward. So I'm a fan of that. And yeah. a wolf just would not be able to deal with that, <laughs> just mentally. Yeah. yeah, instead of the dog chasing the stick, ah, uh-huh. yeah. stick chasing the dog. <laughs> Well, now I'm imagining like a werewolf showing up, and no, that's a werewolf wizard. No, that sounds like a terrible idea. Uh, yeah, so she, but Granny finds her. She's too late to save her because she doesn't need saving anymore because the staff has shown up and done it for her. But she's still freaked out, like she's nearly been, you know, killed by wolves and is out in the cold. So Granny carries her back to the cottage and warms her up. And, and everyone's a bit too polite to be like, "Oh, we thought you were dead." They're like, "Oh, we did." Ah, yeah. Oh, yeah, because her dad and her brothers show up and. Yeah. It's like, she's just going to stay here with me for a little while. And she tries to burn the staff, mm. which quickly becomes a bad idea because the pain is transmitted through to Esk and she screams out. And luckily, she's not actually burned. But that's mm. like, it's horrendous. Like, just that thought of like, you're trying to do something to save a child and then you hear the child screaming because of what you're doing. Like, oh, there's a lot of stuff in this book that's very, like, there's some great laughs in it, but there's also some real visceral kind of, yeah. oh, that's awful. I love it. Kind of moments. <laughs> like, I'm, I don't love, uh, just to be clear, I don't love hurting children. Um, but, just stuffs. Uh, just stuffs. Stuffs. Yeah. 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 Um, and that whole sequence is great. And when she, like, hides the the staff, I quite like that she puts it where Nanny Og keeps her broomstick up in the eaves <laughs> of the house so no one will find it. Yeah. I thought that was cool. Mm. Um, and this is when Granny's like, well, we got it. You got this magical power in you. Better, maybe I'll better train you up as a witch. And there's a training montage. Yeah. Sort of. Well, you know, she learns a lot of things. Very quickly. Practical. And, but it's, it's all very, um, very karate kid, though. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it is. When am I going to learn some actual karate? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's extremely karate kid. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all that was missing is some, like, weird hand gestures. <laughs> I had not thought of that, but that's genius. Uh, and she's very patient. She's like, yeah, when am I going to learn the real stuff? And Granny's, like, very disdainful. Ugh. Uh, until finally, when they're walking on a field, Granny's like, all right, I'll show you borrowing. Yeah, because she's like, you said that all in good time now seems like a good time. Are you having a good time? <laughs> she's like one of those kids like who ask you a question to trap you. Mm. It's like, oh, I remember exactly the wording of what you said, so I'm going to ask you a question that means that you're going to fit. And it's like, oh, and it's the worst. It's so bad, but it's also the best. And so she says, all right, here's what you do. Look, there's a hawk up there. Let's do it. And I, I really like that they, they kind of do it together. Mm. Mm. It's kind of like tandem skydiving <laughs> or, or scuba diving with a buddy, like, you know, holding hands while you do this dangerous thing for the first time. Um, but then when Granny's like, okay, so we don't... Esther's like, why don't you just take over its brain? Then you can do whatever you want. She's like, no, 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 that's not how we do it. We just sort of ask it for permission and we sit in the back seat and we sort of gently suggest what we want it to do and it'll do it by itself. Um, and then she's like, all right, now we're going to stop. And Granny leaves, but Esk's like, no, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it my way. <laughs> and it's a, obviously a total disaster. Well, it's kind of like if you put your kid on a bike with training wheels and you let them go and then they sort of like 
are magic and they fly their bike off into the sky <laughs> and you're like, oh, all right. Okay. Because that's kind of what it felt like to me. Yeah. Okay. But it's like, Granny was surprisingly chill about it for a while. She was like, all right, well, she'll come back. All right. We'll just, I'll take her, her body back to the house and she'll be there. But like two days pass and she freaks out more and more. Yeah, because I think she's thinking, like, you get the impression Granny might have made this mistake a couple of times. Not the taking over Mm. part, but the staying out for too long. Like, clearly, she'd just done it in the pro. So, she knows how that works. But as it goes on longer and longer, she's like, oh, you've done something that you shouldn't have done, haven't you? And she can't find her. Isn't it that great scene? Like, is it a bear? Like, she comes across a bear and then makes it walk into a... Into oh, a tree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's a that's a classic um, Granny Weatherwax right there. Yeah, <laughs> so oh, that was great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but eventually, she does find the hawk with a little bit of help from some bees. And this was interesting because she talks about the bees. Like the bees are a theme even in this first appearance of her, which is great because I mm. love bees. But when it's the she, bee plot. it's the <laughs> it is, um, and she, but she mentions that she doesn't often mingle her mind with the bees, and you're like. Well, that's a big plot point in a later book that you can't do it. Like, it's too hard. So, I guess this is just her sort of talking to them rather than mm. borrowing them in the mm. full-on sense. Uh, and she gets them to go off and, can you just go and find some stuff out for me? And nobody knows where Esky is and eventually finds her and is able to bring the hawk home. And and S does come back to her own body, but even worse than Granny is like unable to deal with the fact that she no longer has wings and tries to glide out of bed and falls on the floor. Yeah. It's just so good, that sequence. And just the detail of like when she's trying to pick up Hawk-esque, um, she bites her, so like Granny goes behind a boulder to take off her petticoat, even though no one is there. Yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. Animals might see. <laughs> Animals still can see. They can see behind boulders. They're probably like, anyway. That's I true. Just, that's just yeah there's some weird moments with granny weatherwax always weird moments because she's slightly weird character which is what's compelling about her there's just great characterization though i thought because like she would do that she would be like no it's not it's not seemly to be out in the open even though no one is here and also she rides the staff there to find that's right yeah because she doesn't have her own broomstick she doesn't hold with that at the time but she starts to sort of go oh well maybe i don't loathe this i could tolerate it yeah i liked i like the detail earlier on where she's got a windsock on her house because even though she doesn't like riding broomsticks, some of her friends, friends do. do. <laughs> <laughs> that was cute. That was great. Is, uh, is that like a deliberate thing? Like the staff being usable as a broomstick to draw parallels between witchcraft and wizardry that aren't often seen? Or is that just like a stick that we or can is it just, Or is it just setting up the hiding the, the staff as, as a, a broomstick? Yeah. Yeah. The disguise. I guess there's, there is a bit of that. I, I'm from memory in The Light Fantastic, and we haven't reread it for the podcast, so it's been a long time, but I think the wizards in that ride broomsticks um, mm. rather than their own staffs. Or maybe, the, but maybe it is their stars. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure they get about flying on broomsticks. It just seemed of. deeply uncomfortable. Like, I just don't see how it could possibly not be horrible. I always thought the way that they do it in the his Dark Materials novels makes more sense, where they don't sort of sit on it. They have like a bit of cloud pine that they kind of hang on to, and then they sort of just fly through the air. Of course, it would be more, it would be... Um, less uncomfortable side saddle though. Yeah, if you <laughs> yeah <for the> balance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I don't imagine Granny Weatherwax not sitting side saddle on a broom. Yeah, yeah, because she'd have all those skirts and things too. Like she wouldn't be. Well, every time they describe Nanny Og traveling on a broom and all the stuff she carries with her, I'm like, you've got to have a saddle or a cushion or something on there. Like, there's no way all that stuff would just fit on a long thin bit of wood. That's ridiculous. Grievo. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Oh. Uh, but yes, Esk does return. She's a bit freaked out. And this is when Granny starts to realise you're never going to really be able to do things the which way you've got a wizard soul. You need to learn how to be a proper wizard. And there's that bit where she's like, all right, you show me what you've got. And she says, light the fire. And she doesn't uh, just light the fire. She melts it into slag and down and melts the hearthstone and causes a hole underneath the house. Like that was like, oh man, that was oh full on. Did she just kill like they make a comment about how there's mines and dwarves on there? Like, did she just kill a whole bunch of dwarves? Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. So certainly scared the shit out of them. Yeah. yeah Ruined some of their minds. <laughs> They'll be writing home about that. Or like, could it be good? Like, could it like could it be good for their mining if it melts it all into a pond? You're like, oh, well, there it is. Or well, at least she would have added ventilation. Yeah. Sunk a new shaft. Although she's going to cap it off with a new hearthstone. So I don't know. You don't want dwarves like popping up out of Granny's <laughs> house. She doesn't seem very fond of them later yeah. in the book. Well, that's because they're used to great effect to show like what it's like as a woman going to mechanic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the worst. Yeah, but see, this is when this is when the campaign begins. We've got to get Esk into Unseen University to learn how to be a wizard. She writes a letter. It's very charming. She uses diaries because it came from the almanac, which oh, just yeah. means like to urinate a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think it's misspelling of diverse. Diverse, surely. probably. Yeah, yeah but um, but yeah. that is how it's spelt. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's, a, there's another Sorry, there's another page where they misspell diverse as divers. Oh yeah. Leave off the e. That's nothing. Nanny Og does that. Mm. Oh, and, it's, and so it's more poignant to the book if it's like it's a misspelling of diverse as well because. University is not diverse. <laughs> yeah. Very true. Very true. Yeah. Just to jump forward slightly, though, I know we'll get to Simon, but I got real Mort vibes from him initially. Like they described mm. him as like lanky, pale, with the knees and everything. And I was like, is this like a similar character? I think there's a lot of stuff in this book, in in all the the first few, mm. even in Mort, where he's trying stuff out for the first time, and he's like, I like this idea. I like this idea, but this isn't my best version of this idea and so he does it again later mm. and you see this that you know that simon type of character comes back in mort and in nigel the destroyer mm. um and yeah so and there's a certain amount of of rincewind in simon as well true mm. early rincewind yeah and, a, and a, just a touch of ponder stibbons i think as well yes i think he's the academic wizard yes in fact um it seems sometimes that that ponders like um the Simon character more um, better realised the um, the kind of more computer science geek mm. um, wizard, which is what Simon is kind of a mathematical mathematician wizard. Mm. Um, I think Pond is a similar sort of character, but a bit um, better realised, or he'd met more nerds by that stage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and he's based on sort of a later trope of that too, because you know when this is being written, Pratchett was, I mean, he was always a bit of a technology nerd. He was into computers and stuff, but I think by the time he's writing Ponder Stibbons. And he's creating hex. You know, personal computers were a thing, and readers would be familiar with computers at least to some degree. Whereas if he'd tried to write that in this book, people mm. would have been like, "What the hell are you talking about? I don't even know what computers are." Was Goodwill Hunting out by this point, or did that come later? By the time this book was written, yeah. uh, the film? No, I don't think so, because this is like late eighties. This book, just like there was Goodwill Hunting vibes to the way he was in the university, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so um, they decide to, well, they have a conversation with Esk's parents to say that she has to go off and go to the university. And while Granny is just basically telling them that's going to happen, her brothers come out to be like, you can't do magic. You're just making it up. Prove it. And she's, yeah, so she, one of them sort of accepts that she can and the other one is just a bit pig-headed about things. Um, 
So she gets a bit sort of het up and has to prove herself and then suddenly it sort of cuts because he has that cinematic thing where he will cut across to a a new shot, essentially. Yeah. And she has, in fact, turned her brother into a pig, yep. which is, again, taps into the themes of the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very very literally. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like the I'm turning your brother into a pig thing, that, that to me is one of the many bits of evidence I take that um, J.K. Rowling was not was not particularly original in any of her thinking. When huh. when Dudley's t- um, given a pig's tail, oh yeah. oh yeah, as punishment for being a bit of a dick. Yeah. <laughs> so, so. And I love that he had to get it surgically removed though, because like, can you imagine being like a doctor and they're like, oh hey, our son has this. Could you? Uh, yeah, the president would have had to go not to their regular doctor either because the regular doctor would be like, you didn't have this any of the times that True. I've examined you before. But Where did this come from? Also, if you went to any doctor and they saw this, they'd be like, I really want to publish a paper on you. Yes. <laughs> Probably they did. But like, yeah, that's interesting. Well, that's, that's many of the, one of the many times that J.K. Rowling, in my opinion, was a little bit scooted a little bit close to Pratchett. Mm. Mm. Um, so Esk's brother is a pig. Yes, but she turns him back after. She does, although battle of wills with Granny. Yeah, see, and she—it's the one time when she sort of does have some control over it, really, because she didn't turn him into a pig like by trying to make it happen, just because of thinking that's what should happen. But then she does turn him back on purpose, and it's one of the few times she's got any control over the magic that's flowing out of her. Mm. Yeah. Except possibly later on with the um in the bar where she gets milk revenge. No, when oh. she gets revenge oh, after. Oh yeah, that's right. Mm. That was yeah. Uh, it's time to set off, and this is like Granny's first great journey outside of the Ramstop to fawn parts. Yeah, and, to fawn parts. Yeah, and here's a really great like comparison. I think is that when they're trying to get onto the cart. Simon is introduced here along with the wizard who's bringing him, and wizards traditionally travel for free because that's just their right. Mm. And the cart guy's like, all right, you can, but what about this guy? And he's like, oh, well, he's going for training. Well, he's got, not got a staff, so he's not a wizard. He shouldn't go for free. And they're like, oh, but he will be. And they do this whole bartering thing, and eventually it's like, you'll owe me one later. Whereas Esk, who has more power than both of them, is like, hello, I'll pay. And he's like, go away, child. You're small. And then he only... That, well, that's one is... of the many references where where um, Terry Pratchett shows a remarkable astuteness for understanding um, male supremacy because the whole novel is about male supremacy, but you wouldn't expect a man to be able to write a novel about male supremacy and cover all the issues so well. And I, I often wonder where he got this strong understanding because his books are – most of um, – Pratchett's books are quite feminist. Mm. The first two maybe not so much, but mm. the later ones are, are a, um, kind of anti um, – um, male supremacy, the anti-white supremacy, and you, you wonder where he got that from because he's, he is a or was sorry a a privileged white beardy man. Yeah, but he had and it was also ahead of his time. I'd say as well. this wasn't the sort of thing people were writing about. No, they're no. not common themes at that time. There's something I noticed um, years ago when I was first reading Terry Pratchett. It says differently now, but if you look at the old the copyright notes and the old copies. All of his books are copyright Terry and Lynn Pratchett, yeah. not him. Huh. Which means if something happened to him, his wife would have copyright anyway, even if he died suddenly. Yeah. Which is interesting because he wrote them, obviously, like solo. But he, he put the copyright notice in two names in case something happened to him, which is unusual, extremely unusual. Yeah. And this one says copyright done manifesting limited. Oh, yeah, okay. That's interesting because that's a more recent edition, isn't it? It is. Wow, that's not even not narrativia, but I guess narrativia is just for the production work but there was an article written about how all these like great male authors who 
wrote so many books were only able to do that because they had wives who took care of everything else in their lives. So, that yeah, they could spend like 10, 12 hours a day in their shed writing books because someone else was doing all their cooking and cleaning and making the, you know, the general machinery of life happen for them. Was that the article where Kazuo Ishiguro like, I think so. was saying like how grateful he is for that and he has a deal with his wife where he would just like hermit up for a few weeks? Yeah. And then I think they have a reciprocal deal or something like that. Yeah, and then there was a recognition that a lot of famous male authors had that without there being some sort of shared time Mm. deal. Like it was just, that was the understanding it would always work that way. And Rihanna Pratchett retweeted it saying, yeah, my mum basically did everything so that my dad could spend all his time writing, which Mm. explains how he was able to publish like four or five novels a year Mm. sometimes. Uh, And I, I feel like maybe, you know, in his household, he really had a recognition of that. And that's why the novels are copyrighted to the both of them because Mm. he recognises that while he might have actually come up with all the words and put them on the page, she was doing everything else that made that possible. Teamwork. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's where his inspiration was. Maybe Maybe. it all was from Lynn Pratchett, who we don't know much about. Like, you know, she's led a pretty private life and we don't know much about the Pratchett's personal life at all, which is fine. He had a cat. Is that rule? Yeah. He collected carnivorous plants. Yep. Yeah. And you have a carnivorous plant too, a, don't you? I have a carnivorous plant named Sir Terence that lives on my desk. <laughs> Just excellent place for it to be. Yes, very appropriate. You, you have to, you got to have a, a um, carnivorous plant named Sir Terence on your desk. Yeah. What else would you have on your desk? Especially yeah. if you're a writer. Yeah. Yeah. This is, means Sir Terence is watching over you while you write. Hmm. And then again, I haven't been back to my house for a few weeks with my broken arm, so I'm, my carnivorous plant may actually be dead by now. Oh. Or feasting on bugs. Water. Yeah. Uh. Uh, no. No. I'm sure it'll be fine. It'll I'm be terrible fine. with plants, so. Well, yeah, yeah. We're all we're all saying a little prayer for Sir Terence. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Let's hope Sir Terence is okay. Yeah. 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 One of the other things I quite liked on the those lines is early on, the first person who says no, why shouldn't she be a wizard? Is the spirit of Drum Billet. It's not even Granny, huh. because she goes to talk to him in the tree, and she's like, "You've got to stop this. Like, leave her alone. She's a woman. She can't be a wizard." And he's like, "Why not?" And there's that great line where she says something like, there was an excellent reason why exactly this could not be the case, but unfortunately Granny just couldn't quite think <laughs> of it right now. <laughs> well, I, lo- I love how the, there's, a, there's a suggestion that he's no longer being human and becoming a tree mm. as part of that decision-making. Yeah. Mm. Um, which is interesting from a couple of points of view. Firstly, trees are hermaphroditic. Yes. Right? So that's one thing. The other thing is really... It, it changes your entire time frame and your perspective on the little things, I think, when one becomes a tree. Yeah. yeah. A little bit like how, um, as we hear a lot about in this book, the orangutan librarian has like left behind human concerns. So has Drum Billet now that he's no longer even an animal. Yeah. Um, Wouldn't you know it? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I should I truncate these jokes. Oh. Look, let's let's not branch out on any topic. Uh, We've got to stay. Leave it alone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's get on to the journey because the journey is quite fun. Like this, you yeah. know, the witches abroad is the big, you know, journey abroad that Granny Weatherwax goes on with her fellow witches. But this is her first big journey outside of the Ram Tops, and it's it's a it's well, it's pretty cool. Like, I mean, I, I don't think it goes on for too long, and it it shows us a bit of what the countryside is like between the round tops and because they go to the big town that she's only been the, to like once in her life. Yeah, the big town which has maybe a hundred has one suburb and one square. Yeah, which I thought was was great. And another witch who sells like special potions from a stall yeah. in the market yeah. for money, mm. which is not how they do it up in the round tops. Mm. Yeah, and she's great. It's interesting because they have the whole section about how her stall is 
basically kind of like a hospital clinic. It provides, actually, they talk about how families would be a lot bigger there if that store wasn't around. Hilton. That's a great, founder. that's a great witchy name, isn't it? Yeah. It is. Yeah. And it's just funny because, like, she would have had that not knowing she'd become a witch. Possibly. Yeah. Isn't that like, because yeah, they well, called to it? Maybe. Well, she, she doesn't seem to have a title. So Hilta Goat Founder is her name, but she doesn't seem to go by nanny or mother or mm. granny or any of those other sort of honorifics that all the other witches have. Because she's a cosmopolitan witch who lives in the town. <laughs> in the true. enormous town. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, and she's... she's Parochial. Yeah. She's, she's a bit like a combination of Nanny Og and Magrat, I feel. Yes, mm. she is. Because she's got that sort of older, like, in tune. She's just got characteristics of the both. But she's a bit more new agey in the way that she sells her potions and names them. Yeah, she feels a little bit like the the witch who trained Magrat in some ways as well, but not quite. Like, like oh, a bit yeah. of that as well. Because you know how she, like, traveled a lot and things. So, like, she was a, research a bit witch. of all of them. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So this is practically, I think, trying out his ideas of what other witches might be like, but just with one other witch character because we don't meet any others. During well, I love how um, later on he comes up with the idea that every witch has um, a kind of characteristics based on what her non-witchy job is. Oh, yeah. Mm. That they all do something that's not actual witchcraft. Mm. And they've all got some something about the characteristics that fits that job. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm quite keen on that. What do you yeah. think Granny Weatherwax's non-witchy job is? Um, beekeeper and, um, and um, what do you call it? She's a lady. Vlog maker. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> she runs the still. That, 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 in later novels, it basically talks about her still being the only still in the village. Is it not Nanny's still in the later books? No, I'm trying to remember this because in this book, it, it she does talk about hers. doing distillation, but I think in later books, it's Nanny who's got the only still in the Or maybe the um, Granny's thing has been the, the town um, midwife. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Job. The midwife for about eight different villages, and it's quite mm. common throughout her, her novels. Mm. Yeah. And the idea that she's, um, you know, she never had kids, but she's, um, delivers everyone else's children is quite a recurring theme. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's that where she's got that line where she doesn't want to explain it all to S because she's like, I feel like, you know, I've made a study of the anatomy of horses and <laughs> what they eat and how they fit and how you raise them, but I've never actually ridden one. <laughs> you're like, yeah, okay. I see where you're going with that. Yeah. 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 And, um, yeah, Granny Og's definitely the, um, Distilling and potions, and of course, other ones have crazy um, jobs afterwards. Yeah, like um, Tiffany Aching's cheesemaker. Yeah, that's right. Queen and the queen. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> queen. which is too big a job, and she stops being a witch more or less after becoming queen. Just sad because she liked being a witch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she probably still does bits of it from time to time. Yeah. One of the things I thought was interesting in this book is that Granny is using, you know, the placebo effect quite a lot. Mm. She, or she talks about it, but she also really knows all the actual herbs mm. in a way that later is really described as being more Magret's thing. Well, she's using both, like, because basically if you have the medicinal effect or something plus the placebo effect of it's going to work, you sort of make it work even better. Yeah. Well, do, do you think that Granny Weatherwax is more the every witch? Mm. Like, she's she's kind of better than all of them at everything. Yeah. yeah. She doesn't normally reveal that, but she's like, you're kind of like the... I mean, I think there's a later novel where someone says there's no such thing as a head witch, but if there was one, it'd be great. Um, Esme Weatherwax. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, 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 yeah. She seems like the sort of person who at school would sit in the middle to the side and when they ask a question, never raise her hand to answer it, but just quietly know the answers and maybe just be 
reading a yes. book or like just doodling something because she knows, but she doesn't need other people to know that she does. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And she gets along quite well with this other witch, Hilta, but they sort of they, you know, chat about it. They're, they're going to stay with her overnight, even though Granny's quite keen to get along. And there's a great bit where, you know, Granny has to begrudgingly admit that there's things she doesn't know, like, for example, where they are going. Well, what an elephant... Oh, she doesn't admit that. She's like, what's an elephant is my favourite quote from earlier. And she's like, you know, it's some kind of badger. <laughs> That's great. Uh, Yeah, and also Esk manages to slip off in the marketplace and just go for a wander where the magic is sort of leaking out of her and doing all kinds of weird things like ruining a game of thimble rig and... Yep. Um, P's raining down. He owes everyone money because he's doing like is it like the three card Monty kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also um, transforming like marzipan ducks to life, where they go and melt in the pond. Just the imagery of that. I know I keep saying like the imagery of that, but like it's just they're free. They're out and they're melting. <laughs> yeah, I just yeah. there is a very different feel to the prose in this book, where it's much more. I don't know what the right word is. What do you think it is? But it, it feels to me like it's there's a lot more beautiful description of things. It's it's a lot more. I don't want to say literary. That sounds wanky. But, but the richness of world description, perhaps. Yeah, I think because it's a new world and and Pratchett's trying it out. That he's he's really going all and out. It's a, and it's a bit us. shorter on unnecessary puns and comedy, which are part of the. What do you mean unnecessary? Of, well, puns? Un- unnecessary for the plot. <laughs> Liz to the quick with that kind oh, no, of I think un- it's because the name, for the plot. the name is such a good pun. Maybe he yes. felt like he'd, he was done. Need, need. Well, you know, this is like... Most of the names are puns, though. Yeah, but this one's like an exceptionally good one, I think. Was the, well, I also think there's there are fewer jokes in this book. Like, it's funny. Mm. It's funny all the way through, but there's not so many actual gags and, as ob- such. And obvious puns, because some of his puns mm. are really obvious. Yeah, this is more subtle, I think. Not as many footnotes. So, yes. Yeah. 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 So there's not as many absolute. Here's a gag. Gags. Uh, it's more like this is a funny situation, and here's a. Every now and then, there's like a really funny turn of phrase or a funny description, and it catches you a bit off guard because you're not expecting it, and that makes it even funnier. So I really, yeah, I just to, really love the prose in this book. To draw a longer bow, like it's kind of like all the other books are a mind that has been borrowed. So there's like the main mind, and then there's like another one sitting at the back, which is putting in footnotes and jokes. Whereas this one. It's just one on its own. Or the or the theory from the witches' books talking about first sight and your second thoughts. Your second thoughts are the thoughts about how you're thinking. Oh yeah, which is my understanding of how psychology works. At none. And also for me as a as a writer, when I'm writing, I'm always conscious of writing and of watching myself writing mm. separately. It's like I think I think his later books have more the um, second thoughts. He's in he's actually being aware of what he's writing and having a a kind of the, basically, the fourth wall isn't so much um, dissolving in the later books. It's completely absent. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit, there's a couple of moments that break the fourth wall in this book. Which, but basically, in these later books, it's um, all the whole book is, of most of the later ones, is an in-joke about the lack of the fourth wall. Yeah. Hmm. And this one's got little bits where he does that thing where he uses an example from our real world to illustrate yes. what he means in the fantasy world. And he's not saying like those things exist in that world because there's a bit where he talks about the broomstick that Granny borrows being the broomstick equivalent of a split window Morris Minor. <laughs> and I'm like, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> those cars are terrible. But yes, it's very funny. And then there's there's little jokes that like early on where um, when Granny tries to chop the um, staff of the axe, he said there was a, a thunk and a sound like a partridge. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. What does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can just hear it. <laughs> Strangely. Yeah. She's about to go into the bar. Yes, she goes into the bar. 
because all she wants is a glass of milk because she's a seven or eight year old girl, whatever age she actually <laughs> might be, because she's about to claim she's nine in a minute. Mm. Uh, but yeah, she just wants a glass of milk. And of course, they don't sell that in a bar, in a tavern. There's a beer. Yeah. Or so they thought. Yeah. yeah. So they it do. smells strange and he's used to the hoppy smell of beer and the barrels behind him. Mm. So she transforms it all into milk and they pour her a glass of it and then they complain about this and she realizes it's not quite right and they wanted to put it back but she can't doesn't know what beer tastes like she only know, the only alcohol she knows is the incredibly <laughs> strong brandy or uh, is it brandy or schnapps or something apple, apple, i think they call it applejack or oh they took yeah, yeah applejack's that when the, they turn the, the cider into the it's like it's a peach brandy. Oh, peach it's brandy! One, it's right. one that it's the one that specifically Granny makes. I yes. think and doles out when she needs her to sleep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so she remembers what that tastes like. Turns it all, all the barrels full of it, and that's like worth millions of dollars because it's so much Spirits. brandy. It's, yeah. And then his his lady Macbeth wife like comes oh. out. And it's like, oh, we've got all this stuff. Little girl, would you like to stay with us for the night? Yeah. And the narrator of the book explicitly talks to us and says. Hmm, there's some real Hansel and Gretel style vibes going on here. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, it's not good for a hero. But of course she's fine because the magic protects her and very much gives the tavern owner and his wife something to think about by transforming all their new brandy into something gross. When they try to kidnap her, the um, husband says, I hope the um, brandy hasn't turned into something unspeakable. Yeah. <laughs> and the morning they discover it has indeed turned into something unspeakable. And I like how they, he really does, does leave us to imagine what that could be. Yeah. <laughs> which, and how they would have found out. Oh, gross. Which is <laughs> not delicious. So, Esk leaves the pub... And it's time to carry on the moving. And is this, this is where she tries to get in on the caravan. No, this is where no, she, is she falls that. asleep That's in right. just like a really nice sort of thing and then suddenly wakes up adrift. Down. Oh, yeah. On, she says, oh, not a nice barge. On, on a barge. Yeah. Why would you go she to just sleep on a barge? In. She's seven or eight. Come on. <laughs> Your puns are terrible. I know, but uh, I love them. <laughs> they love you. Yeah. Uh, they give us all with the life. Z- a barge with the zoons. Yeah. Yeah, they were great. I really liked the zoons because they could have been like a like a gross kind of, you know, river folk gypsy kind of horrible thing. And they do have like people be racist towards them later. Yes. But they're actually just like a great group of people. They reminded me a lot of the, um, the Egyptians from His Dark Materials, which have a similar kind of vibe. I haven't read His Dark Materials for like... 15 well, they're, they're basically very similar to the Zunes, like they're a bunch of river folk, but they're like heroes of the book. You know? but, and I love that they have a designated liar. I love the designated liar because the thing about that is it's like acknowledging that basically trade is lying. Mm. They're, they're, it's, it's actually the, the idea of having a liar is actually extreme, uh, and calling them the liar is extremely honest, which fits for an honest people. It's kind of one, it's a very big joke that's well thought out, this idea of a, of a culture that can't lie. So they train people to lie, who are then called the liar. I just, I just love it because it makes people, other people, um, go, well, that's weird because they've got someone they call their liar, but that's because they're so, so honest otherwise. So it's like, it's, it's venerated. And there's, isn't there like a line where they say people would prefer they call them something like a diplomat or a something like that? Yeah, <laughs> that would, but that would be dishonest. Yeah. yeah they're being too honest <laughs> without being dishonest. Yeah. And because they don't, they can't do euphemisms. They're like saying a bad thing in a slightly nicer way. <laughs> Yeah, that was great. But then, yeah, see, if they were, if they call themselves something other than a liar, the other zooms wouldn't be able to refer to them. Yeah, true. They wouldn't know what to call them. Yeah, because they can only call the other zooms going to call them liars. Yeah, and there is actually a few things about truth in there because 
there's a bit later where Esk is upset where she hears that women can't go to university. And she's like, but I can tell when people tell them the truth. And then Granny's like, no, what you detected was him believing what he was saying. That doesn't mean it's the truth. Yeah. And I thought yeah. that was very Which good. to me comes down to, I speak a lot about what a lie actually is. And I always say that a lie is, it's essential for a lie to be a lie that the person who's saying it knows they're lying. Mm. Yeah. Because if they're not, they're just telling their, their personal truth. So yeah. that's, and there's a difference between saying your personal truth and actively lying. Mm. Lying is active. Mm. So yes, if they're saying what's, what they think's true, then that's the truth. Mm. It's an ethical difference as well. Mm. So yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, and yeah, she's on her way. She doesn't seem at any point worried that she's left Granny behind. No. Really. She doesn't seem at any point worried for stop. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. She's just very like, I've got a thing, I'm doing a thing. Uh, although Follow she's smart destiny. enough to hide the staff away um, until eventually they, they go ashore at another town and they're doing some trading and someone wants to pay um, the liar in mm. a bunch of these gemstones, which she very quickly realizes are not the actual gemstones, even though they look super convincing and there's no obvious visual way to tell. Mm. Uh, and so he takes them and gets them tested and they are indeed the cheap like semi-precious zones, yeah. basically, yeah. And that's when he gets real suspicious of her and looks at her and is a bit like, mm, and is not sure what to do. And she's like, well, guess my trip on the barge is over. <laughs> like she's smart enough to go, okay, they're suspicious of me. I've got to move on. And it's that real kind of, like you can almost see a whole book just about esque, like trying to travel to Ankh-Morpork. It's like Arya and Game of Thrones kind of. Yeah. yeah. Like it's her little mission. Yeah, she's got that little girl traveling vibe, but I like I know that this I'm not welcome here anymore. It's time yeah. to keep going. And this is when she sees that there's another way to get to Ankh-Morpork from this town where they've stopped. Instead of going down the river on the barge, she can get into a caravan. Uh, and there's some other people trying to get into the caravan who are wizards. So it's the exchange that I was talking about earlier where like the men feel entitled to a free journey even though they haven't like accomplished the thing yet. And she is willing to pay because she is quietly good at the thing. But they don't want to take her because she's a small girl. And he's like, I don't take runaways. So she just starts barging off down. That was not deliberately like a joke. <laughs> <laughs> down the path. She's like, which way do I walk? And she starts walking. And the guy's like, oh, I can't leave a little girl walking through these cutthroat forests. Um, yeah. So he's right. like, all right, come with us. And so she does, which is how she meets Treadle the wizard and the apprentice Simon. Treadle has great respect for women, like witches. Like he's just, he's just got such great respect for witches. Yeah. 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 Can't say it enough. Yeah. And it's actually really good for them that she's with them because traditionally wizards are the protective ones. But when their caravan is actually attacked by these this group of people that like cut the throat of the guard, mm. they're not sure what happened. But there's like bits of these creatures all yeah. over the place. And I guess one of my favourite puns, which is still it was a relief to get away from the macabre sight. Gander considered that Knowles didn't look any better inside than out. He hated their guts. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. That's a, that's a classic, that's excellent pun, that one. And actually, this is interesting because you can tell this is something from Patchett's early stuff where he just uses a lot of very traditional fantasy, even Dungeons and Dragons-y stuff because here we've got, we've got like it's a very casual mention to goblins at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, the creatures that attack the caravan are Knowles, which he describes as like a kind of a stone goblin which I'm like, oh, that's, I don't, it made me curious about what gnolls are in traditional folklore. Cause in Dungeons and Dragons, they're these sort of gross hyena people who are like horrible and bloodthirsty and raid people and kill them. Um, whereas in this, you never really get a clear description of what they look like, except that we just know they're really mean and that their guts are no good to look at either. Are they grassy? 
No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you you got to remember though that the Color of Magic was kind of wasn't written, and the Light Fantastic um, they were started as an overt parody of all his friends' fantasy novels. That's what he was doing. He was taking the piss out of all the fantasy novels he was reading. His obvious piss takes of um, Anne McCaffrey and. Fritz Lieber and all those people. So in a way, he's taking the piss out of fantasy and you can't take the piss out of something without being aware of the tropes of it. Hmm. Yeah. Imagine if you'd written like this nice book and then your friend's like, I'm writing a book that's mocking your book. <laughs> and, then, and then get more successful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be, you'd be like, oh, not dang. again. <laughs> no, Pratchett. Um, yeah, it's like you couldn't have done it without the original source material. That's always the but, thing. Like, it sure is a feeling. Yeah, it is. But yeah. Yeah, so that happens. Um, the the caravan continues on, and eventually, Granny does catch up to them. But after it's only like they intersect after Esk runs away after a particularly upsetting oh, conversation. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because she she starts talking to Simon and Treadle about being a wizard. And this is the thing, like, because up until this point, even though she's had that conversation with Granny about like why wizards are men and witches are women that aren't like it's just not the done thing, but Granny is like. Well, that doesn't have to be the case. We're, we're going to take you to the place. This is the first time she's really been told, no, you can't do the thing that you want to do or are good at because of something outside of your control. Mm. So she gets very upset because she's having a good conversation with Simon and his stutter and all of that. Like he seems pretty harmless and off in his own world. It's mm. when Treadle comes in and he does the whole, I have great respect for witches there. They're, they're good for all the like the jobs in the country and the little, you know, women And the nature work. things and yeah. the midwifery, which just occurs to me suddenly that what, what Pratchett may have been referring to is the difference between witches and wizards. He could have actually been referring to doctors and nurses mm. because doctors were the intellectual ones that were considered to be a high-class job and nurses were doing just important but was considered to be a female job. Mm. And they used to say in the 60s that a female doctor would be a nurse. Yeah. yeah. It still happens. When I was in medical school, people would ask what I'm studying and I would say medicine. And they'd be like, oh, do you mean you're going to be a doctor or a nurse? Whereas that never happened to any men when they said they're studying medicine. Because if you're studying nursing, you'd say you're studying nursing. Yeah. And it still happens to female colleagues I have now. Like they will be there with doctor on their name badge and people will just assume that they're the nurse. It's Medicine is scientific and you go to university learner and nursing in the olden days particularly mm. was, was closer to midwifery and something that they consider women were just able to do without any training. Yeah, yeah. even though it is very hard work, so much work. knowledge, and it's just, but yeah, the assumption, the societal assumption that it's just, you know, lesser than. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it also mirrors the actual division in magical thought in our real world as well, where people, they, you know, there are different traditions of magic and the idea of wizardry and this sort of, you know, the hermetic order of the golden dawn and all that kind of um, uh, hermetic magic is is like very seen as, like dudes do that and then, you know, the more sort of traditional Wiccan or hedge witch kind of traditions of magic are very seen as very feminine and, and for women. So even in magic stuff, that division mm. exists in the real world. And everyone's real mean about warlocks. <laughs> like yeah. everyone. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's just deeply upsetting to see her have this conversation that a lot of people, like, you don't normally have it overtly. No. But she gets the message all in one go that you're a girl, you can't do this thing, mm. sorry. That's that's it. So she runs off. Yeah. And, you know, she's got that young person's very strong sense of justice that this is not fair and I'm angry, but who am I going to take it out on? What am I going to do? It seems like the whole world is against this, like as represented by the one person I've been able to talk to about this who isn't Granny Weatherwax. 
So she has a nap. Yeah. Off she goes. And she's having those weird dreams again. Yeah, the weird dreams of weird creatures that seem to be made out of bits of other creatures. And the the things from the dungeon dimensions are such a just a persistent presence in about the first seven or eight of the Discworld mm. books. They're always the thing that's trying to break in to the real world, and they're always gross. I love that she's like, oh, well, as long as the one that's got a winkle on its forehead's not there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like yeah, because like, if you're having those sort of Lovecraftian horrible nightmares and you're a small child, like that's even worse. Like You don't even know why these things are unsettling necessarily. Mm. Uh, but yeah, that sounds gross. Mm. But then when she wakes up, Granny's there. She's had a whole bunch of stuff. As in, Esker set a whole bunch of stuff on fire. And she's like, no, oh, we're She didn't gonna- just set on fire. She's melted it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Her specialty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But now it's time to get to Angmorpool. And surprisingly, Granny thrives there. Like She loves it. I know. She just really just becomes a city witch very quickly. Yeah. Uh, which seemed very weird to me. Like, so out of character with mm. how she is later. But maybe, you know, she had a taste of it and later on she regrets it. So. Well, it could be that Granny is the quintessential witch and she just fits into... It's implied in late novels that she shapes the world around like someone wearing clothing. So maybe she just puts on the the city like a cloak and oh, just yeah. and just moves through it. Because that's kind of how she moves through the world. And in, in later books, she just she enters that place and began this. It's not so much that she enters a place, but the kind of the place wraps around her. Because mm. let's face it, to Esme Weatherwax, she is the center of her universe, <laughs> as she should be. As she should everyone's. be. Everyone's. Yeah. Yeah. She and yeah, she not only believes that she's the center of the world, but she makes herself the center of every world as soon as she's there. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and she and yeah, like you say, she thrives. She does really, really well. So it's not so much she became part of the city, but the city fit around her, fit around her. Mm. Mm. And it was like, well, there was a hole in the city waiting for her because, as she says, like there's there's a bit of a shortage of witches around here, and the witches aren't very good in the yeah. city. So you need me. I'm the best witch. So okay, I'll do my thing. Uh, but she does enjoy like the sort of blessings of the city like she's able to get cheap glassware so she can make her potions yeah uh, she doesn't have to import it from the long distant places yeah or try and make it herself or buy it from the dwarves yeah and they're staying in the shades which doesn't get a big mention here it's just sort of an offhand reference saying that it's a dangerous place it's where all of the things are but there's that great pun where she they set up shop next to someone who sells illegal goods because granny had heard that good fences make good neighbors <laughs> i like that but think about the think about the shades from ungmorpok and i've always understood it this way the shades seem to me to be quite a safe place for anyone who belongs there mm. or anyone who's perceived to belong there and from my experience of kind of living in some rough places they're all like that if you mm. don't look like you don't know where you're going you're probably safe in most places yeah. from from mundane crimes anyway, yeah. from being mugged or whatever. Yeah, and of course, Granny's going to always look like she's more dangerous than anyone else. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and even in Ankh-Morpork, I think most people, particularly in the shades, no one's going to mess with a witch. Yeah, no, yeah, because they all know what a witch. They is. want to grow up with the same number of limbs or away we went to bed with. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and there's that really like nice like again reference to Mrs. Palm and again sort of esque innocence. She's like, oh, the lady with all the daughters, but they keep yeah. getting all these visitors. And when do they sleep? I know. And Granny's like, ah. Oh. Yeah, we'll talk about that sometime when you're older, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but she's still trying to get Esk into the university. This is where she sends a couple of extra letters mm-hmm. and there's no reply. Extra letters. <laughs> Sorry. So so they just go. They just go to the university one day where the big doors are. Oh, sorry, just one second. Isn't it wild that letters are the word given to the thing that's made up of a lot of them? 
I've never thought about it like that. I'm going to send yes. you a letter, but it should be. I'm going to send you a letters, and then you can be. Then you can become a person of letters. Yeah, you can do a PhD of letters. This is one for David Astor. I want to know if they actually are from the same root word or whether there's two different derivations of letters, and this is why we've ended up with letter as a a thing you write to someone and letter as a single character used to represent sounds or words or ideas. Or it's like how you play golf with a golf club and at a golf club, and you write about your characters using characters. Yeah. Oh, oh no. <laughs> we need I'm more work. <laughs> We've got to come back out of this rabbit hole. We need Simon to make up some words for us. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, he'd be very good at it, I feel. Because they, they arrive just as they're trying to get into through the gates. Uh, Treadle and Simon show up. And they, of course, can get in because Treadle's the, as we find out, vice chancellor or one of the vice chancellors mm. of the university. And he just does some secret signs and the doors open. And. Mm. They He's looking real snotty. He's got real snotty motivation. He just makes my blood boil. He's like, oh, you come in. He's not very likable. Yeah. But he's, he's like, goes out of his way to be mean. Does he really? Yes. Why does he bring her in if he's not trying to be a jerk? Because he's not he's being a jerk. Got good intention. Oh, okay. He's trying to take her down a few pegs. He's, right. he's I, a jerk. I, I didn't clock that, but I think in retrospect, you're right. Yeah. It's not like he would have changed his mind, and been like, oh, no, I'm going to help this girl join the thing like what possible motivation could he have other than being like i'm going to show you why you don't belong mm, maybe but i mean he could have just turned her away from the door but yeah, i guess well, that, that what you're saying less, is it, yeah that would have been less mean cool. that yeah. would have been yeah. less of a jerk move okay all right fair fair yeah um, i can't think of any possible good motivation if she managed to up. pull off that spell in the great hall he'd though, still be a jerk yeah he'd still be a jerk he'd probably be like one of the boys he'd, that. F- he'd find some other way to be a jerk mm. Mm. okay yeah. I just, I guess, I liked him more at the end, where he's like left, like trying to fix everything while the archchancellor. Well, there's away. that. That's because he got smacked down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, he's had his come up by then. That's there's fair. There's a quote, quote when she's like with the zoons. That's like because he technically she's not supposed to go with him to the trading, but there's a quote that goes along the lines of if you just sort of ignore the rules and don't listen to them, they'll they'll kind of rewrite them so that you're an exception. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's kind of how Treadles handles the whole situation mm. later he's like oh well it's happening i better get on board even though he was like a prize jerk like he's like the evil dean from an 80s movie about college <laughs> like initially he really is. Yeah. He really and is. he's also the uh the end let's face it he's quite scared mm. yeah yeah that's true. Which and i'm embarrassed yeah yeah he's a little man who puffs himself up and he does that in this way by making a little girl feel bad like it's just it's horrible. he's basically a, a jerky internet troll yeah <laughs> yeah Okay. He's like, some, right. he's like one of those people me. who posts about Greta Thunberg being like too uppity. Oh, oh, oh no. Yeah. Oh. Or, or one of the one, one of the ones that um that um mansplained Harry Potter to J.K. Rowling. Yes. <laughs> Which I've seen. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. So he's bad. I'm sorry, but he's he's bad. Okay. All right. <laughs> he's, he's bad. Um, and unfortunately, those things do not go. Do not go well, and Esk is not able to get in as a wizard. But Granny has another way because she goes around the back door and has talked to Mrs. Whitlow, who runs the servants of the university. Well, there's an important important point there, which is each um, um, when someone says no woman has ever been in this in this building, yeah. and Granny basically says, "What a load of." Bullshit. Yeah. Because yeah. of course we would have been in there. Yeah. Just got to find the right door. Yeah. Which reminds me a bit of the bit in The Lord of the Rings with, um, no man can defeat me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I it's a no loophole. Man. There's always a yeah. loophole. And of course, the idea that no woman ever enters the building is completely it's laughable. Ludicrous. Yeah. yeah. But it takes kind of Granny Weatherbacks going, well, of course there's a way in. Mm. 
a woman's door to make you realize it. And it also, I mean, you know, that's a, that says something about the, the class system there with the wizards as well, because they mm. don't think of the servants at all. So mm. when they say no, no one is, no woman has ever come in here, they mean no woman has ever been a wizard, mm. but they don't think about all the other women who are in there. Yeah. All the time who live there. Exactly. So not all of them live there for very long because they keep waking up in their beds as other things, yeah. like the chambermaid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they always put them back, but yeah, it's like you turned me into a newt. But they also reminds me of, um, of, um, uh, you often hear things where people in the servant class are ignored as being as existing. For example, in the you know the the classic historical story of the three hundred Spartans. Yes, there were three hundred Spartans. Three hundred Spartans, three thousand servants <laughs> who were also armed. You know what I mean? They, yeah. they don't talk about their servants and some people from another village that weren't Spartans who were there as well. So there were actually three hundred Spartans and about ten thousand other people. <laughs> suddenly, suddenly their <laughs> conquest seems a lot less impressive. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, although against still against overwhelming odds, but sure. still, it's the not quite so overwhelming. Yeah. So it's like that because there's there's a case of the invisible people in a in a story, mm. which I think kind of is part of what he's making a reference to the the idea that people have an idea of what defines person, and a, a, often a servant or woman or a person of color is not within the definition of person, so therefore they're not mentioned. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and in this miraculous other world of the university that the wizards never think about is the ideal place for Granny to get in there and get Esk in there as a servant working for Mrs. Whitlow. And Mrs. Whitlow, this is like her biggest starring role in any of the books. She gets referenced in later books because she persists at the university, even though they change arch-chancellors and a whole bunch of the staff well, that, That's what you'd expect. Yeah. Yeah, of course. She's like, Classic house. She's like the, the civil servants in Yes Minister. I was, to say, I was thinking of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but she's great. And also a bit of a proto-character because she's got a few traits that Isabel has in Mort. Like mm. she's got pink frilly everything in her bedroom and she's sort of desperately hoping for a man to come and sweep her off her feet. Yeah. Again. Interesting. Yeah, again. <laughs> she's been married a few times. Uh so yeah, I thought that was that was interesting that she seems a bit like a precursor to Isabel. I, I realized while reading this book that I'd had a notion that housekeepers weren't allowed to get married, which is of course ridiculous. And I don't know where I got that from. I'm like, they're not nuns. <laughs> no. They're just the head of a house. I don't know. I, no, just, well, I guess in Downton Abbey, they just didn't Well, get what usually happens end, is if yeah. you're a housekeeper and you get married, you're no longer a housekeeper. You go off mm. and keep your own house. What if you marry the butler? Well, the, the, yeah, there, right. there were cases, <laughs> there were many cases in, in historical big houses where the, the housekeeper would marry somebody and then he'd become the butler. Oh. Or he'd become, or she'd marry a butler from another house and move and work for that house. So that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a good way to approach. As that. long as they stay in the servant classes, no one cares. Yeah, mm. yeah. And yeah. it's not like they're in, they're not interchangeable anyway to the nobles. They they don't know what their servants call. It's true. Yeah. Downton Abbey is lies. Yeah, but it's charming lies. Well, it's that it's that uh, you know that charming story that the people want to tell about the idea of class mobility, and it's like, yeah, of course these distinctions don't matter, but they never actually destroy the system. They just show you how we can all get along within the system, of course even though it massively for- privileges these people. Of course, he's going to pay for cataract surgery for his for his chef. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, no, it's never happened. But so S gets a job, and she gets told she'll really clean up by Granny, oh. which is. A, a, a great pun. Yeah. Oh. So that's – and it's a great pun from Granny, which is just – makes it even better. It's not her usual style. But also it's incorrect because, like, she personally doesn't really clean up. She just sort of starts and then the staff does all of it because, as she says, the dust is afraid of it. Yeah. 
And it's disguised as a broom by this stage. And it works like a vacuum cleaner because it has that description of it going along and so like the dust disappears into it. Oh, yeah. yeah but because true. they have that displacement magic thing, is it going somewhere else? Like, is there like a town where just like... Oh, yeah. the dust is... Of course it is. <laughs> Maybe that's where all the grey sand in the place between dimensions comes from. Oh, so they're just, just depositing university leftover <laughs> dust. <laughs> From all the different universes, all the that, dust that, that place, that, that um, place in between the worlds of the grey sand. I mm. mean, that's one of my that that place turns up a lot. Yeah, normally it turns up when when Granny Weatherwax is around. Oh yeah, mm. or Rincewind. Rincewind does have a few Rincewind gets ends well. up there a few times. Granny ends up there a lot. Mm. Yeah, it's mm. a weird place, and because there's and there's a few different sort of versions of it too. Because like the one that Granny often goes to is sort of this sort of void. Like this, because there's like the mirror universe, and mm. there's the the couple other ones, and then well, whenever Rincewind goes there, it's a lot more like this, where it's just sort of this desolate, just boring, dull place that is full not, of scary things, though. Yeah, full of scary things that don't really know how to make themselves into things. Well, do you think it reflects the mind of the person visiting, perhaps? Uh, yeah, that could be it. it. Could be it. Yeah, and I mean Rincewind. I mean, I remember Rincewind turning up, and one of the novels turning up in that place, and basically he gets stuck there for years. Yeah, yeah, but running. Yeah, just running through there, <laughs> trying to escape the whole time. Yeah. While Esk is doing all this sweeping up, or rather while the broom mm. slash staff is doing it for her. Everything sucks. Um, she's yeah. trying to learn wizardry um, by listening into lectures, but she can't really understand any of it. Uh, and she can't read, so she can't understand any of the stuff that's written on her chalkboards. She does hear Simon talking to the senior wizards, and they seem very impressed by all the stuff that he says. And we've learned that he's a scholarship student who like, sort of self-taught, and he showed them this very impressive little world. That he built, like back when they were first showing Eskin to the university. Oh yeah, so that's worth mentioning. I think that he's remarkable in his own right. And he's like the yeah. wizard Einstein. Yeah, yeah, and he does that spell. Yeah, where he shows like the whole disc world all at once, mm. which is you know something that it's quite, it's a bit similar to one of the spells that one of the wizards casts to show off in sorcery as well. Mm. And they think they actually say in this book maybe he's got the makings of a sorcerer, like someone who could make new spells, and it's not. The idea of what a sorcerer is isn't quite the same in this book as it is in the later book. But the idea of them being only a few wizards who can create new magic mm. rather than just learn how to do or, existing or magic. Or more the point that people whose magic comes from them rather than being absorbed by them as well. Yeah. Mm. which is, And I also quite like that idea that they explain that the whole purpose of a wizard staff is to accumulate magic out of the atmosphere so that you can then use it to cast spells, which explains why they're so important, but also helps explain how wizard magic works because he's always talking about the conservation of magical energy. Here's the thing I want to talk about um, is the phallic imagery of the staffs because mm. it's... Because the wizard staff has a knob on the end. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But it's, it's one of those things where it's... I wonder if it's a metaphor for too many things because they even make jokes about how like they have to send her off there because like many young wizards don't know how to control their staff and it just goes off when they don't... Like There's all like... Sometimes it's overtly... Yeah. I mean, even the cover illustration in the yeah. early edition has got Esk holding the staff, you know. But sometimes it is just literally like a channel for magic. Like, there is all of this, the gender stuff that this book is about. But, like, it's kind of like how in Buffy, magic becomes, like, the what it's a metaphor for changes across the series. And it's been like, quite widely criticized for that because it started off as being, like, a metaphor for um, Willow's experiment with her. Well, like finding out about her own sexuality and how it was like about her love for Tara and all of that. And then it turns into drug addiction. Yeah, that's so dumb. So they shift what it's a metaphor for and that sort of ruins both. And a really clumsy and very with very little nuance metaphor for, for drugs as well. Like yeah. it's just a real like 
distillation of every cartoony drugs are bad kind of reference. It's it's really bad. Which wouldn't have been so bad if that was all it ever was, but it's because they changed it from one thing to another that was quite bad. So I'm not saying it's the same thing here. I'm just wondering if they're trying to pack too much into the staff, like if it's got some staffing issues. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you think about the um, the notion of a, of, this, of a staff being phallic, then... Um, then that would also be an explanation why the, as I keep saying, the idea of a female wizard mm. is laughable. Mm. Yeah, because you know it just doesn't make sense to them that they, uh, that a woman could have a staff. Yeah, yeah, their ideas about it are way too fixed. Yeah, no or not, like it just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah, so that's just a, a, an aside I kind of wanted to discuss because that's it's a good aside though. Yeah, uh, but then when she decides that. Clearly the only way she's going to make sense of any of this wizard talk is to learn to read and goes to the library. She runs into Simon after meeting the librarian briefly, um, although she had heard about him and was prepared and brought a banana, which I thought was a lovely detail. Yeah. But, yeah, she's she meets Simon who's like sort of helps her to not look at one of the horrible books about demonology. Uh, and on an aside, the Necrotelecomnicon gets another mention in this book, which I love as a joke. And it turns out that the things are watching Simon and S can see them watching him. She sees them watching him when he's giving the lecture. She sees them watching him when they're in the library together. And it seems that whatever kind of weird magic that he is inventing or whatever new understanding he has of magic is creating a new way for them to get into the disc world. And while he's sort of thinking about it and talking to her, they're getting very close to breaking in. And she sort of takes the staff uh, and sort of rides out of her hand and cracks him one on the skull and lays him out unconscious so that he can't be a conduit for them. But then his mind is gone. It's been taken by them into the mm. dungeon dimension. And, yeah, what's she going to do? So she fetches Granny because the wizards don't really know what to do with him. Mm. They just think he's unconscious. Um, that women's stuff, like dealing with unconscious people. Yeah. I thought that was kind of weird because later on they've got, like, medical wizards because they get, like, experts in mind magic and experts in body magic. Maybe that's Esk's impact. Maybe like, or maybe it's yeah. it's um, Granny's impact on, yeah. on wizardry. Could be, could be. Uh, but I mean, they reference those later in this book, like because they summon them because they talk about yeah, we'll get some experts in in Esk-parts. medicine and <laughs> yeah, and and mind, and they seem to be wizards, which I thought was a bit weird that they didn't bring them earlier. But yeah, they determine that his mind is gone, and Esk decides the only way to save him is to kind of follow him. Yeah, and they find someone who's important by asking, like, who's important mm. to help out. But you know, don't forget also that um, that at this by by this stage, a couple of times, um, Granny has actually borrowed the building. Oh <laughs> yes, she's discovered the university has a mind of its and own and borrowed it. Which I mean, that's that, that's just a warning of of what Granny Weatherwax can do. Really, is borrowing just, an entire building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she uses it to open a door at one stage. I thought it was a nice subtle use, and then just but so still, wild. Yeah, it's what a great idea. Um, it reminds me again of, I think I mentioned this on the podcast before, Nigel Neal's The Stone Tape, which is this great TV thing about how uh, stone buildings, if they're in the right configuration, can store like psychic memories, uh, which is where ghosts come from. And I thought this is a similar kind of idea, except they don't store memories. They kind of become alive from being exposed to magic and wizards and people. It also has a, a connection to In the Dark Side of the Sun, with the the planet that oh, has yeah. an earthquake and it cracks and it gets the right configuration becomes a giant sentient computer. The, the first sentient planet. bank, yeah. Yeah. That was great. I love that character a lot. Yeah. It was really fun. It's a good good sequence. Yeah. Um, but, you know, after 
while all this is going on and Esk sort of ends up in with her mind in the Dungeon Dimensions trying to get Simon back and um, figuring out what's going on there. Yes, Granny is talking to the senior wizards um, and in fact gets to talk to the Arch-Chancellor, but not immediately because when she goes into the Great Hall, <laughs> he's pretty annoyed that she's there. And he makes a big mistake. He just goes, right, we're having a duel. Um, and they match each other and like Im- ma- immediately turns into a snake, which is yet another phallic image. Yep. But then I love that she turns into a basket and then it just goes on from there. Um, but what I love about the, about the duel is the fact that what he was doing was being an active, com- an active aggressor, taking aggressive shapes. And what she was doing was being the, the passive force that will always beat them. Mm-hmm. So it's like um, he was always thinking... Um, active projecting power mm. and she was basically thinking about um, absorbing whatever he was doing it's, it's kind of like she what what she did was was essentially magical judo yeah she's yeah. just blocking or him. magical aikido just using whatever whatever he used against him not not actually fighting back in a way that that eventually she was going to win yeah mm. yeah i thought that was great and that's why she he eventually talked to her because eventually she was going to win and he didn't want to be embarrassed mm. and i think that his his understanding that eventually he's going to be embarrassed by having his ass kicked changed all his behavior from that point on yeah he's mm. like oh hang on i better take this seriously I be, oh, at I least better I, I better i better knock him ass kicked by yeah. this chick from <laughs> badass <laughs> yeah yeah I, and it turns out he's from just yeah. down the road in the Ram Tops, when they talk later. And I like Cut Angle. Like, he's one of the... The early Arch Chancellors are all a, sort of a mixed bunch. Like, they're all either idiots or they die very quickly or they're evil. Uh, but Cut Angle is a bit different. Like, yeah, he, he needs to be embarrassed in a magical duel, but he does admit that she would have won. And when she says, oh, look, there were a couple of times there where I thought you almost could have won, he's like, oh, really? Like, he takes her opinion <laughs> on that very seriously, but not in a way that's like, yeah, I could have, but more like... Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Yeah. I and of course, which is probably why she said it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. Because let's face it, I cannot think of a Discworld character who would actually want to take on Granny Weatherwax. No. no. Not one. Not even death. No. no. Not even the gods. No. Absolutely not. <laughs> and I think so, it's, it's testament to the, the fact that this guy is Arch-Chancellor of Unseen University that he even has any kind of chance of lasting for a while against yeah. her. Like, he's clearly a very powerful wizard. Is she trying her hardest, though? Or is she just being like, oh. okay, we'll just... Let's just have a game, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the, when the, the, of course, and this was the first time we get we come into um, what Granny Weatherwax's big thing, which is um, you don't have to use power mm. to have power. Mm. You yeah. don't have to use... You don't have... Just because you've got power doesn't mean it's there to be used. Yeah. You, you can have power and just hold on to it for when it's, when it's absolutely needed. And then we, of course, it builds toward the idea of finding out that the witches don't just exist to be midwives or whatever. They're actually protecting the fabric of reality across Mm. the entirety of Discworld. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also just nice to see her do something overtly magical because by this being one of the very few times you see that happen, it makes all the times when she doesn't do it more powerful because you know that she could. It's Mm. like we're esque waiting to be trained in magic, but we just get shown like not the things but so when it happens it's like extra special yeah, yeah. well uh, cut angle decides he's going to help but esk has abandoned her staff because she's so horrified that it's clocked simon in the head and she has that one moment where she talks about how oh if he cleaned himself up a bit maybe he'd be quite attractive which is unnecessary well i thought that was going to go somewhere else and I, I wasn't a fan of it but i also reflected on it and i'm like but when you're that old and you're just starting to notice other people are attractive you do have those kind of thoughts and they don't necessarily go anywhere mm. and you don't really know what they mean. And I thought that was quite reflective of how someone that age starting to have those thoughts for the first time 
would be. I thought True. that was that was fine, and I like that it like there's never actually any actual hint of romance. Like they get along quite well, but that's about it. Because it's also not entirely clear how much older than her he is. Mm. He's been roaming around by himself as well, hasn't he? But I mean, so I'd say he's at least a teenager, surely. But he's not probably a teenager, but not necessarily because they could just be like more independent in the. Well, yeah, I guess that's true. But yeah, and, anyway. And then then you get the fact that in abstract mathematics, they say that the greatest abstract mathematicians come up with the greatest, their single greatest theorem before they're eighteen years old. Huh. Oh wow! On, on average, so by the, cool. they reckon by the time a mathematician gets to university, they're already mostly past it. They're never <laughs> going to come up with another good theory again. Yeah, okay. So if you think about it that way, then there could be the notion that he's quite young, and by going to the university, what he's doing is basically eventually going to cripple his <laughs> ability, <laughs> yeah, for ability sure. to, to to think freely. Because at a certain point, you don't. Th- in a way, she's breaking the rules because she doesn't know the rules exist, and he's breaking the rules because he doesn't know the rules exist. He just he does this mathematical wizardry without knowing that you can't do it. Yeah. And there's an implication too that the kind of magic he's been finding and studying on his own is maybe not... A bit dangerous. The, yeah, the safest magic because when he's reading the book in the wagon train, he's it's like some weird... I mean, it all looks like this to Esk anyway, but there is it's kind of intimated that's a dangerous book with maybe like demon lore or mm. something in it. Yeah. So, yeah, interesting. It's right. like if you don't have someone to teach you or guide you, you don't know what road you will go down. Mm. That's a, yeah, that's a good way to put it. So the the Esk has thrown the staff away because she's frightened of what it's going to do to Simon, uh, and she's stuck in this dungeon dimensions trying to figure it out. And his his body and his mind have been co opted by them to conjure all these little conduits into other worlds because it's mm. not just the disc world that they might be able to use his ideas to get into it's other worlds too including our world but also there's a couple of worlds based on norse mythology like because there's one with the world tree in the middle and there's one with the world serpent around the outside of it i was like oh this is cool and like pratchett is obviously a big fan of norse mythology there's a hefty dose of that whenever he's writing about the gods he just mixes the greek and norse mm. pantheons in there which i really enjoy so i thought that was cool just getting a little glimpse of what other worlds he might have thought about and written about if he wasn't always writing about the disc world. But yeah, it, Granny realizes they're going to need the staff to rescue Esk and find her mind because this is how she was able to find her when she was stuck as a hawk. Mm. So this is going to need it again, but finding it's going to be a bit of trouble. So she enlists the Archchancellor's help. And meanwhile, there's a massive storm. And he only goes, he only goes along because you've got the sort of um, sort of behavior that when you expect people to follow, they follow with that thinking. They go, "What am I doing?" Yeah, which we've we've seen that sort of person. Everyone knows that sort of person. Yeah. And you go along with what they say, and they go, "Wait, hang on a minute. Why am I doing what they said?" Yeah, and Doesn't some make sense. Some, and Granny at least uses that power for good. Yeah, thankfully. Yes. <laughs> yeah, um, it's like I, the people who can guide tours in art galleries. Like you just you follow them because they're just so vibe anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Uh, but That's they go, a small scale example. Yeah, they get out. They go out into the river to try and figure out where the staff is. He's like, "It's just raining. It's this massive storm going on. We're never going to find it." And we get. I think this is probably the first recorded instance in the Discworld books of the phrase "million to one chances crop up nine times out of ten, <laughs> which I thought was great. Uh, and so um, they they end up getting in a boat, which Cut Angle does not know how to use either, despite what he says about it. I just thought that whole sequence was very funny. And I like the relationship between and the two And they paddle it with a broom too. Yeah, because yeah, they don't have any oars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was cool. Um, and eventually they find the staff because wherever Esky is is the place between the stars, which is a very sort of Lovecrafty way of saying the other dimension where these Lovecraft creatures live. Lovecraft is at the beginning of the book. so Yeah, yeah which seems appropriate. Um, and so it's very cold there. 
and the staff is feeling that same cold and freezing uh, a bit of the bay because they drift out into the sea uh, and they end up on this ice floe. That's how they locate the staff. And uh, they sort of work together to get it back. He uses his magical powers to levitate it out of the ice. She gives it a stern talking to um, (laughs) and they manage to take it back to the university and give it to Esk just in time, really. Um, although the university's flooding. That made me very sad because I was like, oh, no, what about all the books and stuff? And it turns out that's where they put everyone because it's one of the driest places left. Um, but they give her the staff back and then, you know, she's able to use it. But she doesn't, she, this is, I mean, it kind of, she's kind of learned this lesson that you don't have to use magic just because you've got it. But also she and Simon together come up with this weird idea that not only do you not have to use it, but if you don't use it in the right way, then you go beyond magic and do this other you have, thing. You have to point it and not use it. You have to mm. demonstrate that you have it. Yeah, yeah. And then not use it. Which sounds a lot like what Granny was saying. Yeah. It is a lot what Granny was saying. <laughs> Although Granny then doesn't seem to get it when they talk about this magic beyond magic and you're like, isn't it just a, what you were saying? <laughs> I don't know. I thought that was that was a little... It could have been developed a little bit more maybe, but or I Maybe they're like developing the, the language of academia to exclude others. Who knows? Oh. Yeah, um, but they managed to escape and close off the doorway to the dungeon dimensions. Um, and the Arch Chancellor, after a bit of other, you know, to do, um, says, "Well, yep. Oh, but actually, she can't use the staff. That's right, because she's not a wizard yet. That's right. mm. So he has to allow that. And there's that repeated reference to what about the law? And he's always saying law, L O R E. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was that was a nice touch. But the funny thing about the word uh, law, so L O R E, if you go up into um, Aboriginal communities up in the Northern Territory, mm. they say there's a white man's law, spelled L A W, and the blackfellas' law, spelled L O R E. And the blackfellas' law is more important than the white man's law. So that's a similar thing. It's like the. Yeah, yeah. Parallels. Yeah, I like that. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, here we've got the white fellas at the university have both. Yes, yeah. <laughs> they did not use them well. No. But yeah, they've got to make her a wizard, and they don't do a whole ceremony, but they do give her a wizard hat. And I just once once I realised that because you don't realise that's what's happened until she wakes up and she feels she's got the hat on her head, mm. and I'm just like, I want to see Esk with the wizard hat on. That's so cool. Um, and then you know everything's kind of resolved, and the arch chancellor's like, maybe we'll. You know, we'll get some more women in here once we sort out the, the you know, the plumbing situation. And, but know, we won't show you them. <laughs> no, we'll never talk about this again, ever. Uh, and the staff sort of fifth elements it off into the... Yeah, well, into- the staff, yeah, because the staff closes the... She uses the staff and it sort of bursts out all its energy and now is just a normal staff. It doesn't fly around following her, presumably because it's job. And I, I was trying to figure this out. Like, is the staff super magical before the person is inducted as a wizard because it's protecting them until they get to be inducted as a wizard, at which point they can start using the staff willfully. And so then it just becomes a conduit for them. Whereas up until that point, it's its own magical thing protecting the new wizard. Or was the staff just a deus ex machina? Mm. Mm. Well, and it's it still a, a powerful staff and, and hiding its yeah. its power. Mm, we come back to that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, that, that, that's, I think, a big... A big question about what was the staff and why did it all happen? I just I'm, that that bothers me. Yeah, because yeah. I don't yeah. think we get a clear answer for it, and there are so many good options for what it could be. I like to think it's lying dormant. Like mm. I think. Well, I think this is something that, like a few of the things that our listeners asked us, is addressed in some of the later books that we have yet to cover on the mm. podcast, and that I personally have actually yet to read. 
So I'm very, very interested to see what Pratchett has to say about them when he revisits it. Because I think it's fairly obvious that after this book, he's like, I've got other things I want to write about. And when he revisits the wizards, he has several new ideas about what they're like. So when you finally you come back to the university in sorcery a couple of books after this, it's like, well, this story is not about them changing the way they do things. This is about them reverting back to a really old school way of doing and the, things. And the thing about sorcery is um, I think the whole point of magic is that it's, it's not to create power, mm. but to suppress it. Yeah. Mm. I have a question because when she's taken to the university initially, someone says, oh, so you're the eighth son of an eighth daughter? And they're like, no, she's like more like the other way around. But like, what is there like a magical thing about that too? Uh, that, is that ever addressed? Like, if well, I mean, look in fairy tales, it's always because you know fairy tales are very patriarchal in their way. It's always you know the seventh son of a seventh son or whatever, hmm. and because it's got to be something that's unlikely. Whereas, like, if you're just the eighth child, well, that was not very unlikely. No, like, but like, if it's like a bunch of daughters, and then like if it's flipped, like if it's oh, you mean like the the yeah, so like if it's like, she's the like it's the eighth the son first of the daughter, eighth son, but like, well, she's daughter instead. If it's like eighth daughter, like eighth son of an eighth daughter. Oh, I don't know. I'm I mean, that like, would be because they say that equally unlikely. Like, oh, that would be like a yeah, and and don't forget that um that it, it's revealed in sorcery why wizards aren't allowed mm-hmm. to have sex. Mm. So there isn't an eighth son of an eighth son of an eighth, eighth son. son. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Which is was it, it a wizard squared? That. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a source of magic. Yeah, which is again a different idea of a sorcerer than the one sort of hinted at in this book. Mm. But they have that thing in common. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there is. I've certainly not seen anything in folklore where. Yeah, where that's I was just curious because it was just a line in there. I was like, I wonder if there's an answer. But yeah, if anyone has an answer, please, please send it to us. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's weird to me that in this, in the first couple of times that I've seen, you know, well, the first few books about wizards in Terry Pratchett. They have complicated ideas of how people become a wizard, like a seventh son, an eighth son of an eighth son, and mm. and then later on they kind of dispense with all that because it becomes, I suppose, not as it, it doesn't really fit anyway because you mm. wouldn't have a university with hundreds of people if they all had to be eight sons of eight sons. Well, they do say. I mean, in this book they say there's a couple of different ways to get in, but and I and I was expecting them to say one way was to be the eighth son of an eighth son, and they don't actually say that. They just say like you know you you kind of apprenticed or. Yeah, it was a bit. Maybe it's like the few that are born to it, and then born or drawn. Well, you get the. Well, yeah, I think there's that. I think I think you get that idea. That if you are the eighth son, that's it. You got to do it. But there are other people born with the talent who maybe aren't as. De- it's yeah. not because like not yeah, clear. it wouldn't be enough. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. yeah, yeah. But I and, but I I think also like not every wizard passes on their staff and power to somebody else. But that's that's what yeah, happens a lot with of them are, are snatched from someone's cold dead hands. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's taken from yeah. them rather than passed on willingly. So right at the end of the book, we also get the sort of weird. Well, a couple of weird things happen. Simon comes back without his speech impediment, which I was vaguely his, annoyed his, by. His peach impediment. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, like that's it's such a trope. Like you have the nerd who's got the signifiers of being a nerd. Like they have a speech impediment, or they have glasses, or they just they don't dress well. And then at the end of the book, when they achieve success, suddenly they take those things away from them to go. Oh, they're not nerdy anymore. They're just a they're like a proper person. <laughs> but also, not only does Cut Angle say he might take girls into the university and train them as wizards but he wants granny weatherwax to come and lecture there occasionally and take on students where in her cottage and she's 
considering it. Although the little dena- the little bit at the end which says what happens to people doesn't say that she actually does it. So that leaves it a bit open. But it does say... And we, do, we don't know she didn't either. Well, that's true. Yeah. We don't know In the gap didn't. between stories, it could have happened. Yeah. We've been doing it. Um, but we also don't... We What we do here is that Esk and Simon go on and develop a new kind of magic that no one else understands, but everyone thinks is a good thing. And I like the bit about the ants because we, mm. we meet the ants who have become magically intelligent through exposure to the university, one of whom is Drum Billet, yeah. reincarnated. Uh, and they, at one point, they're building like a little crane and gantry system to steal sugar cubes, <laughs> and which they then use to build a pyramid containing the secret of immortality <laughs> until it gets washed away by a flood. I thought that was just mm. kind of lovely. Yeah. Anti-matters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. But that's the end of the book. Except for me, where at the bottom of the last page, it's like, buy figurines, oh, buy yeah. Discord figurines. All the early ones have got that. It's just a little bit, it's a bit like, over the top, isn't it? And I was like, I get why it's there, but I was like, oh, it's going to be like a pit. No. It's but like, even on the same page yeah. as the end, I thought that's maybe, it yeah. might be a bit much. One um, doesn't have that, because oh, I've got they, a newer one. They've resolved that issue. Yeah. Well, now they're like, you'll just look on the internet. Whereas in these days, when this edition was printed, it's like, if we want you to buy these things, we've got to tell you about so it in is, the this book. This has got on the, um, under the barcode, www.terrypratchett.co.uk. Yeah, huh. yeah. Modern. Yeah. So that's the end of the book. I really loved it. Me too. It had been so long too. since I read it that I there was a lot of stuff I didn't remember about it. Like I said earlier, I really loved the prose in the book, the style of the writing. I really loved that it was humorous, but not overtly jokey. I don't know. I think it does feel like other Discworld books, but it also has a very different character of its own. Mm. Yeah. To me, it seems to be transitional between the kind of more jokey, parodic first two books and the kind of more signature Pratchett style of the later books. It's mm. like, it, it almost like in this book, he was finding his feet that would become the Discworld we all love. Because, like I said before, I wouldn't recommend anyone starts with the first two yeah. books. I mean, I recommend someone gets into it to go back and read them. I don't recommend anyone start there. But I certainly wouldn't be adverse to recommending someone starts here. I agree. Yeah, it's a great book. I really loved it from beginning to end. I think also if you did start with this one, all like the proto elements, it would be fun to pick those up going along rather Mm. than coming back. Yeah. I mean, it's fun both ways, but it's kind of nice to see where the ideas evolve from. Yeah. Um, Now, does anyone have any favourite bits that they'd like to read out? I mean, I... I already said my favourite line, which was about the elephant being badgers. But um. I have one of my favourite jokes is from really early on in the book, and it's when Drumbillets comes to talk to Smith, uh, Esk's dad, and Smith asks him when's he going to die. And the wizard thought for a moment, in about six minutes' time. Oh, don't worry, said the wizard. I'm quite looking forward to it, to tell you the truth. I've heard it's quite painless. The blacksmith considered this. Who told you? He said. <laughs> and I thought that was so, it's just such a clever line and just like a really kind of, yeah, how do you possibly know How that? would you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, I thought that was great. I've got a great bit that probably would have been in a later book, a footnote, but it's in brackets in mm. here. Fossils were well known in the disc world, great spiraled shells and badly constructed creatures that were left over from the time when the creator hadn't really decided what he wanted. And was, as it were, just idly messing around with a place to sing. Yeah, that was such a good pun. That's I a great it. pun. And it's in brackets. I think, uh, yes, I think it would have been a footnote in a later. That's, yeah, that's a good one. Um, I, I like this one. Um, if a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing badly, said Granny, fleeing into aphorisms, the last refuge of an adult under siege. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was great. Yeah. I really like the uh, description of Hokey, the nature god. Mm. 
because they're talking about gods. And Granny says, gods are all right. You don't bother gods. Gods don't come bothering you. I really don't know what voice to ever do for Granny Weatherwax because I just feel like any voice I do will be inadequate. I've seen the Thunder Gods a few times, said Granny. And Hokey, of course. Hokey? Granny chewed a crustless sandwich. Oh, he's a nature god, she said. Sometimes he manifests himself as an oak tree or half a man and half a goat. But mainly I see him in his aspect as a bloody nuisance. <laughs> I'm just, just like imagining what would a god manifest as a bloody nuisance. And he's a pretty hokey god. Like he does he, all like the... He is. All the classic things. And definitely clearly a, a, yeah. a mashup of Loki and Hearn. Yeah. And I just... Yeah, just I love perfect it. mashup. Great. Word-wise. Uh, oh, I quite like the thoughts on bees as well. It is well known... At least it is well known to witches that all colonies of bees are, as it were, just one part of the creature called the swarm, in the same way that individual bees are component cells of the hive mind. And I just I thought that was a nice idea that all bees everywhere are connected to each mm, other. Like the internet. Uh, they do kind of use the bees like the internet. Well, yeah, because they just sort of do a bit of a search. Yeah. <laughs> They're a search engine. A lot of the bits that I liked were clearly like early versions of ideas, like I was saying before, that he then goes on to use again and refine in later books. Oh, there's a nice bit where in Hilter's witch house, Granny's trying to find Esk and she's going to use her crystal ball. Mm. And she says, never could get the hang of this damn silicon stuff. A bowl of water <laughs> with a drop of ink and it was good enough when I was a girl. <laughs> like, you know, with the time this is written in the late 80s, that's the transition where people are going, why do I have to use a word processor? What's, why can't I just use a typewriter? Yeah. Yeah, so I thought that was great. Yeah, that's good. Good to have Zeitgeist in, within like a fantasy. <laughs> yeah. That's something that like, Pratchett always did. He always worked with the Zeitgeist. It's kind of his his thing. In If if you read them kind of the time that they, they came out, they always had references of the time, which of course what the Zeitgeist is. When you read them later, you kind of don't get as much how deeply into the Zeitgeist they are. It's like when I was reading Eric, I didn't get how computery it was because I didn't read it at the time. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's very much the language of computers at the time as well. It's, it's not so much the language you'd use about them now. Plus, I think I didn't know as much about how computers work, so I missed like a lot of the jokes. I really like the joke, and I won't, I won't read it out verbatim, but where Esk hears the phrase, the fabric of the universe, and then wonders if it's denim or flannelette. <laughs> uh, and then there's later there's a really nice callback to that, which I, I really liked. I think the fabric of the universe would be silk because it comes from caterpillar bums. Do you think that you think the universe comes from caterpillar bums? Why not? Yeah, I guess. Well, sure. Why not? I mean, if you can fly on the back of a giant turtle. I also like the little reference. There's no word for words that sound like the thing that they are. If the thing that they are would make a noise, and that, that's used. That's used later. The exact same reference is used later in We Free Men, oh. where it talks about um, how if there were, then the Kelder's chamber with all the gold would, would have would be all worlds starting with glue. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> glisten, gleam, that's glow. Great. Oh yeah. wow! And then there's the other one where he talks about the light, and he says uh, the light was misty and actinic. The sort of light to make Steven Spielberg reach for his copyright lawyer. <laughs> it's like, yeah, there's a couple of nice little real world references in there. When they're in the cart, the guy who's in charge of the cart talks about the paps of Scylla oh, and there's yeah. eight of them. And he wonders, he found himself wondering who Scylla was and if he would have liked her. And I was like, what does that mean? So I looked up paps and it means breasts. Yes, it does. Yeah. And I was like, that's. Which is weird because um, somewhere, I can't remember exactly where it was, was in, somewhere near Lake Gildan. There's a place called the Paps, which is two hills. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. People just, with the names, it's just... Mm. Oh, never mind. 
mountains. There's oh. also two mountains called Big Dick and Little Dick in Victoria. <laughs> oh. Well, at, at least that's evening the odds up a bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> give everything like some names. <laughs> Refer to everybody's body parts. That'd be nice. Yeah. Um, well, perhaps it's time for some questions, Liz. We've got a few from listeners. Right. And it's worth keeping in mind, some of them come in the context of not having read the Tiffany Aching books. So we understand that some of them come from readers who haven't read the whole series. So, mm. yeah. So this one's from the Discord, from A. Edmonds. Um, we never encounter Esk again in the books or any other female wizards, although there is explicit reference in Masquerade to Granny's first visit to Ankh-Morpork. Any theories as to why this may be? And they specifically note that they've not read any Tiffany Aching books. Well, it's certainly true we don't meet any other female wizards at any point. And it sort of goes back to what we were talking about before. You know, he wanted to write some about something different when he brings the wizards back. And so they're not about... You know, they're about tradition and they're about being stuffy and old. And you can't really tell that story while also having them be the most, you know, gender progressive institution on the disc, mm. like breaking the mold and having lots of female wizards there. So I feel like maybe he let that idea go because of the kinds of stories he wanted to tell. And can we tell for certain there are no female wizards? Yeah, because you don't see the students as much as you might. It like- mentions the faculty, but if you went to a faculty in a university now, you mostly see a sea of old white-bearded men. That's true. So if, if women were suddenly added to the university, you wouldn't necessarily see them as much. And also the only younger wizards that turn up regularly in the later novels are basically the computer science geeks. Yeah. Mm. And you don't see many women in that environment either. Oh, so there could true. be female wizards everywhere. It could be like Pratchett's um, reasoning why there's no female dwarves. Because mm. I just don't it's know. It's quietly there. Yeah. It's just quietly there. That's true. That they wouldn't have had the enough time to ascend through the ranks to the ones, like the faculty that we see as well. So that's. Yeah. And they haven't had, because they haven't come outside of the university, they haven't yet maybe had enough of a influence on the culture within it i mean i think the one thing that sort of speaks against that idea is only that in a lot of the rincewind books and indeed in some of the other wizards books they're constantly talking about how wizards have to be celibate and they can't be around women and you're like well that kind of makes it difficult to believe there's women in your university but i again this is something that does come up in the later tiffany aking books it could also be a social thing because it could be like universities in the 20s or in the early 1910s where like women could come in but socially they didn't as much because it wasn't mm. something that you normally did like it's not as normal to think oh yeah i'll go to university so it could be women don't think the, sh- the shift hasn't happened in society yet that more women are considering becoming wizards. So they might be there, there might be less of them because it's the beginning of something that's slowly happening. Yeah, that's true. I mean, just because someone, say, in the video game industry says, we would love there to be more women working here, that doesn't mean suddenly a bunch of women rush to fill that gap because they've been brought up believing that that's not a career where they'll feel comfortable. I mean, not believing, knowing that it's a career where they might not feel comfortable, but also believing that it's not a career for them because they haven't seen enough. And how long would it take the Unseen University to fix their plumbing? Oh, a long time. <laughs> a long yeah. time. Although I don't know why, I don't know why they need to fix it particularly. Like presumably it's like Ankh Morpork style plumbing and everybody uses the same one anyway. I think, I think they're referring more to separate bathrooms. Mm. Oh yeah. Or... Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, so this one's from Facebook, from Grace Orden. Would Esk have magical abilities if she wasn't given the staff, or is it more important that since the staff was intended for a man, that she was still able to possess it? Well, she had witches, uh, witches' natural abilities, mm. they are magical abilities. Like, she was a born witch. So is, I think she would have had magic anyway. Is she a born witch? I, I think, think so. so. 
I got the impression. So this is interesting because to me, I got the impression she was a born wizard, but because she had magical ability, and this book is all about is there really, you know, basically a magical form of gender essentialism, or can anybody use whatever kind of magic they're willing to learn? That she learned witch magic because that's what Granny was willing to teach her. Because even when she was learning witch magic, she took a very wizardy approach to it, like taking over the mind of the hawk rather than really doing the proper way of borrowing. Or or maybe the the staff um, kind of bent her witch's magic towards a wizardly direction. Mm. Mm. Because maybe you're born with magic of whatever kind, Mm. and if you're a woman, you move it towards witchcraft. If you're a man, you move it towards being a warlock or a wizard. And yeah, like Claire was saying, the staff might have been like, Bending it, yeah. Or maybe in in Discord, there's just magic. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter. There's not witches' magic and wizards' magic. People just think there is. It's a style rather than a an style. Actual. How you perform your magic, not whether or not you've got it. It's yeah, what it's filtered through as well. Yeah, I could go with that. And then that maybe, as we were saying before, that the staff's whole plan was to find a girl who had wizardy, you know, a magical potential, and push her towards the wizard style. I, I think the staff actually knew. What was going to happen, and was setting mm. her up to be the to save the world. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's oh. a good question. Um, this one's from Aaron Dick, also on Facebook. How much does the style difference hit you as established readers of this world? I remember thinking the local towns didn't quite fit the Lanker mold when I last reread it. And do you think the ideas of different magic styles and different genders is a harder sell nowadays, or do you think it makes a certain sense? I well, look, I think. Uh, I, I thought the towns were perfectly in keeping with what we know of the Ram Tops, particularly because the the bigger one is out of the Ram Tops. They've come down off the mountain mm. by the time they get there. And Badass feels like this is the proper glimpse we get of where Granny lives. Like most of the time in the Ram Tops sto- set stories, we're spending time in Lanka, in Lanka Town, which is where Granny, uh, sorry, where Nanny lives. Uh, and so Granny's not in her native. You know, sort of and it says that, so that, that Granny's actually the, the witch of badass a couple of times. Mm. Yeah. So we know that she still lives there and that's where she's based and that there's all these tiny little farming community towns. And then Lanka is the is the bigger one, which is the sort of capital of the kingdom um, where the castle is and where Nanny it's like lives. the anchor. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. the Lanka anchor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I, I felt that it was in keeping. Um, so just we're seeing a smaller pocket of it, I guess. And it's strange mm. to not have Nanny. It is strange. Her presence, like I said, I, I missed her presence in the book. And Magrat too, to an extent. But it, mm. it, particularly because Magrat leaves after a while, it's really the pair of them that seem inseparable. But it's nice to see them separate. And I, I, it does make me feel sad that there was no book just about Nanny Og. I would have liked to see that. Like, how does she get along when she's by herself? Nanny Og in her youth is a book I would like to oh, read. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Young, young Nanny. That would be incredible. It'd be or it filthy. Was it just the nanny? <laughs> it's the like, nanny. Oh, now I'm imagining <laughs> her being played by Fran Drescher. And maybe with all the verses of the Hedgehog song. Oh, <laughs> oh no, that would be that'd be half the book by itself, surely. <laughs> oh, what else? What else have we got, Liz? So this one's from a chew and sneezed. Some of the earlier books could be from our position in 2019, looked back on as a little problematic, especially regarding pronouns, FOC, and racially ITs. Not a criticism, we're all products of our times. Enid Blyton stands out as one such, etc. But it seems to me that equal rights is as topical and on point today as any of the books. Do you think that Sir Terry was ahead of his time in regard to equality, or have we not advanced as much as we think we have? So that's kind of like we were discussing that before. Yeah, I think I think Sir Terence was incredibly ahead of his time. In fact, I could even say that for certain people, he drove the change of times. Mm. Some 
nerdy sort of people who I've known have their kind of gender and racial politics have probably changed because of reading the Discworld novels. And maybe it wasn't wasn't ahead of his time, but maybe riding the wave of his time, because the wave of change it it, it happens quickly, and then there's a, there's always outliers that are happening a bit more slowly. I think he was an early adopter of the change of society as as things improved. But mm. I mean, he was he wrote. I think this one was written in eighty three. No, this was, oh, a bit was later. later than that. It's about eighty seven. I think eighty six. I was. I mean, I think I'm the oldest person in this podcast. Possibly I'm forty five. So when he wrote it, I was thirteen. And certainly when I was 13, people were discussing these issues. He wasn't ahead of his time. He was right in his time, and he always was. We just forget how slowly things changed. Mm. I don't forget how slowly things changed. It happened during a lot of this stuff. A lot of the reduction in, in racism happened during my life. So, And, of course, things don't necessarily stay progressed, for want of a better term. Like some no. things regress and get worse again as there's backlash. Mm. I think it's interesting to compare this with Feet of Clay where we felt that didn't feel as nuanced and as modern, mm. whereas this feels this, – this doesn't feel like it's – I mean, because we still, we still have this idea that there are gendered careers and gendered yeah. mm. places and this is all about breaking that down, whereas in the Watch books, you know, you've got women entering the Watch and still being treated differently and mm. the way that's handled doesn't maybe feel as – I don't know. It's, it just feel like it, it's also not the main gist of the plot, whereas this is a book that's all about that, which I think makes it a bit more. But um, in, in the late '80s, topically, they um, was the first time we started having intentionally ungendered versions of job titles. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. Instead of having actor and actress, it started just calling um, everyone an actor. So mm. it was that was during the '80s. So it, mm. in a way, it is, it is the idea of give, doing away with gendered jobs was very much on. On point and on time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, true. It still feels modern. That's because change is slow. slow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've had a few good comments about how much people love the book. Um, and a question from Stuart and C. Have you had any real life experiences with headology? I'm sure I have. Like, Oh, totally. Yeah. You sp- I guess if it's working, you don't know what's happening. Well, that's the point, isn't it? I write head- headology. Oh, so from the other side. Yeah. I, I, in, if you like, um, my novel writing has been headology. Because it's all about manipulation and trying to change people in a subtle way, and that's all I do. Yeah. Yeah. What, and we're doing it right now. Well, I guess so. What, <laughs> all conversation? What, no. what headology techniques have you used in your books? If you, I mean, not that you want to give the game away necessarily. Well, um, my favorite headology technique is letting people make assumptions mm. and then setting fire to the assumptions while they're wearing them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yep. All right. I'll pay that. And it's worth having a read to see exactly how that plays out because it is i don't know how to show good i'm doing a hand gesture (laughs) yeah yeah all right there's a question from alan baranoff is this the best book to get someone started on pratchett so we've touched on it i don't know about the best it's it's a good place to start it is a good one i think a little bit like the first two books even if you really like them as i do they're very different in style. I think this one is, as you say, more of a transitional book. Mm. I think if you want someone to really enjoy all of this world books, you probably want to give them something a bit more indicative of what most of them are like, whereas this one's still a little bit more of an outlier. Yeah, it is. But I think it is a good one to start with. Mm. I'm just I'm looking at the list of the Discworld books. The kind of the earliest one that's recognizably that kind of real Discworldy style is probably Guards Guards, I'd yeah. say. Mm. But then by the time you get to later ones, such as, for example, Lords and Ladies, which I love a lot, that, mm. that's kind of getting that real um, intensity into the soul. But there's, uh, there's 41 of them, so you can start anywhere, really. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's not like a 
there's not a one answer. And as Claire was saying earlier, it depends on the person. So yeah, but this one is definitely on the list of strong strong contenders. Yeah, I think a, this is this is a good impetus and a reminder for us to finish our flowchart yeah. that we started working on. And I'm saying that on the podcast so that we make ourselves finish Fine. it. <laughs> Accountability. Because we would like to help people who want to get into the series find a good book to start yeah. with. And it is a very personal choice. But definitely for some people, this would be a great one. I once saw a chart on online, would have been 10 years ago at least, of the Discworld novels in reading order, depending what sort of thing you like. It was oh, a yeah. long time ago. There's been a few iterations of that and updates, I think. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. That's very cool. This one's from Tracy Liu. Um, did you enjoy his examination of sexism and how do you feel about this as a gateway to the series? So we've answered part two, but um, did you enjoy this as an examination of sexism? We've touched on that a little bit. Um, and my answer simply is yes. Like I thought it was very insightful. I thought it was great. Uh, I think in cutting right down to the quick of what sexism is and how it works, I think it did quite well. Mm. Yeah. I think, and look, to go back to something I said about the start of the book, I think one of the things that was interesting or, or great that it, addressed was that it's not just men that have sexist ideas and perpetuate them because Mm. granny has to overcome her own ideas Mm. about what women are allowed to do and what men are allowed to do although she would never quite put it that way but when drum billet says why can't she be a wizard she's the one who's like well you just can't and then she's like wait a minute hang on and she has to confront that she's absorbed those ideas as well and she does think about that in herself and and challenge her own ideas as well as the ideas of other people, which I thought was really good. And I like the way it challenged the notion that not every one of their prejudiced ideas actually makes any sense when we think about it. Mm. That often when, you, when people say they, they believe something, you say, well, why? And they get, that's when they stumble. Mm. There's a couple of times in, in this novel where somebody's asked, why is it that way? And no one can answer. It just They just say, it just is. Yeah. And a lot of time that's what sexism and other prejudice comes down to. Mm. So yeah, it reminds me. Someone taught me once that if somebody says a sexist joke or something that's otherwise very prejudicial or bigoted joke, one of the best ways you can diffuse that situation without being too confrontational, if it's someone who you care about, is to say, "I don't get it. Why is that funny?" Mm. And then when they they have to explain it, they realize, "Wait, this is funny." In inverted commas, because it's based on a stereotype and perpetuates that stereotype. And yeah, yeah, and it just—it's very good at showing everyday moments where it just slips in insidiously. And again, like I think I mentioned it before, but the example of when Granny's trying to get her broom fixed, and mm. metaphorically, the dwarf's trying to take her for a ride. So it's just she has to essentially, which just shows that dwarves are very brave or very stupid. Yeah, yeah. yeah she yeah. eventually picks them up. It's like just do a bodge job. Do you think this is where she gets that special name the dwarves have for her later on? I've forgotten about this. Yeah, it's in uh, it's in Witches Abroad, I think, where they stop off and talk to the dwarves along the way, and they yeah they have a word for her. I don't think Granny knows about it, but Nanny knows the word for her, which is like you know the thunder on the mountain or something. You know, it probably like, is the origin story. Yeah. yeah, there was also the bit where um, Hilter's talking about how the male council of the village doesn't really want her to be around, but they all have wives who appreciate how yes. important she is. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I thought that was that was a nice one as well. All right. So last question from David Chapman. Why don't we see, either before or since, any magic of that strength from witches or wizards in any other book? Well, I think there's a bit of a theme in the Discworld books where it's never explicitly said. Well, it is actually in a couple of the books that sort of the magic is fading out of the world. But I think as the Discworld tends more towards the sort of Renaissance Enlightenment era where they're getting that sort of industrial revolution coming in, and I realise those are all different things that I've just talked about, but I'm blending them together just as Terry does. Uh, but it's sort of becoming a more rational place where magic is less important to the plot. And so magic becomes much more a background part. 
And if they're, you know, why do you need to, you know, for example, build steam trains across the disc if wizards have the power to magically transport people across the continent? Like, you don't need that and you can't tell that story. I also, I don't think there is a reduction. In, I don't think there are no more showy moments of magic. I think there are some great showy moments of magic. Um, and I, I can think of a, a quite a few off the top of my head. Most of the scenes that where um, Esme Weatherwax flexes her magical muscles are quite mm. spectacular almost every time. Yeah. And, of course, um, Tiffany Aching does some really – she does some whoppers. Yeah. Um, I just think the the way he writes about magic is more subtle. He's talking in the and sorcery, of course, has more magic than any of them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That that has big fireballs being thrown and all that stuff. I think um, what it comes out is he he gets firmer a firmer footing in his idea that every that magic has a reaction and a and a reaction. So the the most of magic becomes things that are about balance, and therefore, if you do something really showy, there's a consequence, um, which is in the later books there's big showy magic, but it's um, more showy in the magical judo sense than mm. in the in the throwing fireball sense. Yeah, it's very subtle. It's like like when uh, you know Granny resists the effect of Nanny's cooking by holding the glass of water and channeling all of the heat out of her body into it. And yeah. you're like, that's not big and showy, but it's super powerful. Yeah, what she yeah. does. So, and you're like, oh yeah, it's just a bit more subtle about it. And uh, you haven't covered it, so I don't know exactly what happens. But the the end of Wintersmith is one of the showiest bits of magic in Terry Pratchett ever. Okay, all yeah. right. Well, so, I'm looking forward I'm to that. I'm going to go away and read some Tiffany Aching books like like this week. I think we might have to throw We Free Men into the schedule quite soon. Yes. We'll Actually, figure that out. And that, that has that has um that has again some really big magic, but it's not showy. It's it's subtle. The for some reason the Tiffany Aching books all end with a big display of her strength anyway, of, of Tiffany Aching mm. flexing her muscles. Yeah. Cool. So right. there's a lot of magic. I think that brings us to the end of the episode. Claire, thank you so much for being our guest. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun. Um, and now, can we let's let's talk about your books for a second mm-hmm. because they are well. The first one is award winning. Has the second one won any awards? Yet? It's just well, it's come only out. been out. It's <laughs> only just come out. Right? It's only been out for like two months. It's so, so early. So the first book is Terra Nullius, mm-hmm. which has won a few awards. It has. How would you describe that to someone who hasn't read it? It's speculative fiction. Um, it's basically a mashup of speculative and historical fiction tropes. In order to challenge colonization, make people see it differently. That's the only way I can think of to describe it. That's, well, that's a pretty that's great description. <laughs> I'm into it. Uh, and your new one, The Old Lie, which came out earlier this year. Um, I got the uh, history of Australia in World War II, particularly the way that Aboriginal soldiers were treated, black diggers were treated, put it in a bag with some World War II war poetry, we shook it up a bit, tipped it out, and then put it in space. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, now I need to read that as well. All right. This sounds amazing. Yeah, your yeah. book list just got really long. Yeah. It, well, my book list just gets longer and longer every oh, mine time does we too. do an episode, yeah. uh, particularly when we have authors on and I'm like, I want to read everyone's books. I will get there. I will get there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've heard nothing but great things about your work. So thank you so much for coming on. And thank you also to all of our listeners and particularly our supporters who uh, give us a bit of money each month via Possible to help us make the podcast. We really appreciate it. And if you are one of those subscribers, you will know that we produce a bonus subscriber-only podcast called The Ook Club or The Ook Club. And a new episode of that is coming. In fact, it may even be out before you hear this episode. And there will be more to come. Um, We've got a few other goodies planned along the way. So keep an ear out for that. I should also say that if you do want to support the work of Splendid Chaps Productions, the Kickstarter campaign to raise funds to make a third season of our time travel comedy radio series 
Night Terrace, as heard on the BBC, should be underway as this episode comes out. So do check that out. Go to nightterrace.com to find out all the details and maybe you would like to help us make some more ridiculous comedy. But we should also tell you what to expect next month. Liz, what book are we reading next month? It's Hogfather. Of course. How could we we not do Hogfather for a December Christmas episode? I'm really looking forward to rereading it. I haven't read it for years, so I there's going to be a lot that I've forgotten. Um, and maybe I'll watch the film. I don't know. We'll see. I watch the film every Christmas day. Huh. It is good. Every Christmas, every without Christmas. fail. Those, those adaptations get a bit of flack, but I actually really like The Hogfather. I think it's I think it's the best one. Well, I haven't watched it yet, and I've only heard nothing but love for mm. Hogfather. Maybe we should watch, watch it together. Do an episode? Well, maybe we Yeah, okay. All right, all right. Okay, well, don't, look, we won't promise anything, right, listeners, we'll but just watch this space. You never know what might happen. So until next time, um, let's just ponder the question, who decided to call it riding a broomstick instead of driving stick? You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Claire G. Coleman. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchett Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat25. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.